America. But if you're using concentric rings on a practical daily basis, say you're a bird watcher or a hunter or a search and rescue person, those concentric rings just on a physical level give you all the information you need. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grand America Show. We are going to be chatting with Carl Joseph DeMarco a little bit later about his book, China Weird, and all sorts of fun Chinese facts. Um, yeah, it's a fun one. But first, as always, the co-host, Graham. See you next Tuesday, Dunlop. <laughs> How's it going, buddy? Good, how you doing? not liking how my mic sounds for some reason. It should be okay. We have some yeah, studio probably. gremlins right now. Darren had to reboot his computer. and There seems to be some gremlins gremlins in the studio today, for sure. So how you been? Good. Like it's been a while. Oh, we did a show last week, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's been fun on the chat there. The little chat. We got the Google chat going and a bunch of people are in there. Just like yeah, a perpetual off. kind of uh, perpetual little chat. That took off quick, actually, a lot quicker than I expected it to. Yeah, that's good. So hi to everybody in the chat. Not the chat while we're talking here, but the the perpetual chat. Yeah, I did make the link, too, over at America.ca slash hangout. Uh, so you guys can just pop into there if you want to join the conversation. I think there's 70 or 80 people in there already. So they can get there from the website, Mike? No, you just type in America.ca slash hangout. It'll, it'll take you there. But you can't go to... CA and then find it there, right? No, you've got to take that. <clears throat> so you have to, that's a weird one. So you have to just use the, that's or you the, can go in the show notes and click on the link in the show notes, right? I don't know. Did you put the link in? Last time I did and this time I will, yep. Okay. Yeah. I'll put it in the doobie doobie doo list at the okay. bottom. Eventually we'll put a link from the website too, I'm sure. Yeah. Just not right now. Yeah, we got lots of good feedback from the last episode on the, uh, the timing of talking about weather modification and. And, uh, oh, yeah. and was it Harold who's threatening me? A couple people are. To de- delete a couple. the back catalog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Harold. <laughs> I have a copy of it too. So I want to, I want to read some of those emails today for sure. Sure. Is that where you want to start? You want to start right there? Do you want to? Is there anything else to do first? No, I think we just thought we talked about the chat. I mean, uh, I don't think there's anything else we need to talk about that. Is there? I don't know. Have you been up to anything interesting as of late? Um, no, not really. No, just working on Grammarica and the show and work and all the rest, you know? None of your, like... Uh, Biohacking stuff or anything like that? Yeah, I haven't been doing any of that sort of stuff. Well, just the regular stuff. What's your What's your favorite thing? No, I don't have a favorite right now. Well, I have a new jingle. Oh, you listened to it already? I did, yeah. It's pretty good, actually. Yeah. Felix pretty good. I yeah. like it. Yeah, thanks, Felix, for the jingle. But no, maybe we'll save that for another time when I try something new. I'm playing it. You better come up with something to tell us. Butter in your coffee? Say what? But butter in your coffee. That's good. That's classic. Instant classic. So what's new in biohacking news? Uh, I've been dry skin brushing. What's that? 
Actually, they do it. They did it in Europe a lot, I think. But it's uh, so before. Oh my God! You just turned me right off. Hello. I think no, that was. Go ahead. Hello. So you just before you jump in the shower, I I do like a bry a bry a dry skin brush, like and you brush towards your heart, so up your legs and up your butt. Towards your heart. Yeah. So it puts all the dead skin piles. No, 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 no. It just gets your. It, it starts exfoliating you and stimulates your lymphatic system. It uh, increases circulation, reduces cellulite, stress relief, improves digestion, and it's invigorating. Like if you do it and have a bath, you can feel your skin tingling. Like it's good so for your skin. Brushing off the dry skin. No, it's about the moving your blood through the underneath your skin and stuff. Okay. It's not about like just exfoliating so the you're surface. Caressing yourself. No, I don't think so. Caressing, you don't use a brush. And you can't caress with a brush. You have oh, to you caress with your brush, head. Then. It's a dry skin brush, yeah. Like, okay. you know, like the wooden handle with the bris hard bristles. Oh, yeah. So it's a hard brush, and you just move it all, the, all of your body towards your heart. Out. Not really. Yeah, it's that's the, exactly what it is. Well, if you, you want you can't, you're not supposed to rub really hard. Made it to brush the energy towards your heart? Do you want me to just read, read to you from Mercola? How to do it? From Merck? Yeah. He's he's into all this stuff. Who's that? I don't really like the name biohacking, but I'm into all this trying to be healthy. But it's hard. Diet's the worst. No, you're not. You're trying to cheat healthy. No, you're, not at all. You're trying to be healthy. I do, you know how much fucking time I spend doing this? All the stuff to be trying to be consistent and healthy and regular, right? Then you crush it half a dozen donuts. <laughs> no. <laughs> I just do it for the donuts. <laughs> you didn't I've been pretty good. When the donuts aren't around, I'm fine. Your nipples are hard. So first you'll need a high Is quality brush. The ice cubes? <laughs> <laughs> Look for one with bristles with natural uh, material and they should feel stiff, but not overly so. So it should be done daily for best results. When brushing, always brush toward your heart, which is best for circulation in your lymphatic system. Oh, I, I don't do the soles of my feet. It says you can brush your entire body. Start at your feet and work your way, ways up and avoid brushing your face. So it's, it's firm but not painful. Your skin should be pink after a session but not red. Or, see, I don't, mine doesn't get pink. Doesn't? Two and between two and twenty minutes. Oh my god, I'm not doing it long enough. Anyways, it's not for just removing dead skin. It's way more than that. Sure. I was skeptical at first, but I started kept hearing about it, and I thought I should try it. Hmm. I've never heard of that. Yeah, I know it's weird, eh? Hmm. So there you go. There you go. That's that's my uh, biohacker of the week. Do a YouTube video. No, I'm not going to do any YouTube videos. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any time for anything but what we're doing. I'll come over and just set up your phone. You could periscope it. All right. Well, right. An, you should periscope it the next time you do your brush. Well, there's a new um, Instagram video thing, right? Maybe I should try that. There you go. Have you seen it? No, I don't care. I don't care. I just want to see the video of you dry brushing. Well, it's, there is a video thing on Instagram now. Of you dry brushing? No, of well, when there's a video the, the of capability. There's a video of that on there. Send it over my way. So look, like, so you can see videos on there, right? I can do one of those, maybe. Do it. I'm not going to do it for that. 
Anyways, that's it. So just a spontaneous little segment for you. Just to utilize the jingle. And I'll put that in the show notes too for everybody. Word up. So what do you want to get into? You want to get into that? You got a lot of feedback on your sobriety. Yeah. Thanks for everybody. Wow. I didn't know until I went to YouTube. Should we get into the, uh, jangles? Sure. Okay. I love this jingle. Bingo, bingo, social media jingle. Don't forget to rate, comment, and or subscribe to the Grind America Newsletter. All right. Oh, what do we got here? I tried to get in the hangout. Doesn't work for me. Great show. Thanks for the entertainment. (laughs) Uh, Okay. If you don't have a Google account, you won't be able to do it. We should mention that. Right. Whether that's in the form of a YouTube account or whatever else. You do need a Google account. So you will have to make a Google account. Go to grandmaker.ca slash hangout and that should uh, take care of it. Um, what else you got? Should we go all the way back to episode 126? What was that? Uh, from Jeffrey Powers. This guy, so that was drugs as a weapon against us, right? Ooh. Who was that now? Potash. John Potash, that's right. Uh, this guy sidestepped the question on people's escalating dependency on prescription medications at about the 42-minute mark. Seeing as how the body count is not even close, I'm highly suspicious of this guy's reasoning or motives or both. Seriously worried about people smoking weed every day with all the myriad of problems that stem from the pharmaceutical industry. Hey. Yeah, good point. Word up. I agree. What else do we got here? Ah, very cool discussion. Some great insights on what could happen with the Pizzagate fallout. And that would have been from our latest episode with Connor and Gordon. Yeah. And then we've got your buddy, Yulian Trollinoff. <laughs> Who's that Habib dude? Sounds pretty lame for a comedian. Kind of unfunny comedy that goes on and on and on. Why, for God's sakes? Uh, Connor's not a comedian. He's a porn star. He was. He was a porn star. Now he's uh, a writer. A writer. Maybe. A blogger. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. Things. A limey. What's a limey? A British person. Okay. Is Connor, is Connor? No, that Gordon would be, probably. They think Gordon is. So who's the Aussie, then? Uh, Gordon. <laughs> so Limey's not. Gordon might be both. or he. I think he's uh, Aussie, but he lived in the UK. Uh, we have from Ryan. Congratulations on nine years being being better, you bro. Oh, congratulations on nine years being better, you bro. You're missing some punctuation. That's okay. <laughs> I don't think I don't drink anymore because I'm just too old and I feel so much better to just not. Once in a while, I use a near beer for medicinal and spiritual purposes. There you go. Yeah. Ram, thank you for sharing your experience. This is a sink for me, brother. Thank you very much. Nice. Why so much hate for Bill Nye? <laughs> this is and a then good we one. Have a, we have a response <laughs> from uh, STV. 
Uh, can't speak for anybody else, but I know why I despise him. Number one reason, smugness. Dismissive smugness and disdain for contradictory viewpoints. Lesser reasons, he's a gatekeeper of sorts. His whole MO seems to revolve around trying to force conformity of thought. Also, he's kind of a jerk. <coughs> and a douche. Proud of your sobriety, Graham. Thanks for being an inspiration. That is not Graham coughing on YouTube. <laughs> Just so that you know, he's... Uh, do you need, like, a Heimlich maneuver here? <coughs> no, I'll be okay. Grandma's <laughs> choking on an ice cube. Uh, I love the podcast. You guys could get should get more views. We don't get a lot of views on YouTube because we don't have videos. But a lot of people <coughs> download. Jesus Christ. Uh... You know, I really dig the music choices before all the chats. Where do you find your groovy tunes? Someone has a great mind for music. That's me. I use Broke for free a lot. But uh, you know what I'll do a lot of the time is I'll just go into the the music spot there and I'll like search in a keyword from show notes. Yeah, you, you learn that up. from me. That's what I used to do when I used to do the music. Is right? That, I don't know what you used to do. With you. I was listening to some of your music. Before I deleted it all out of the bank account, <laughs> there was some. Everything was like, you must have been on a club and uh, club and little kick for no, a no. I just liked. <laughs> I think that's about all I got. Actually, I thought we had something on the face bags too. This shit takes so long to load. Uh, da, da, post by others. No, I hope I can read. <clears throat> no, there's nothing. Just a bunch of pictures of wolf fins, you fucking assholes. <laughs> well, actually, I think that's like a uh, wolf kangaroo. Look at Anywho, what else you got? That's it, man. Let's do the, the uh, response to the weather modification segment. What's the response? Well, I had a bunch of people forward me, um, which is interesting timing. So this must have come out. And then shortly after or shortly before, the Guardian.com came out with a uh, article. <clears throat> Excuse me. U.S. science. Uh, oh, we're doing this. Uh, we're doing this. What do you mean? Graham uh, believer in contrails. Can you just play the Kate I, Bush one next time for me? Ready to take the picture of your face when I play that jingle? Yeah, okay, I'll play on the Kate Bush jingle. <clears throat> okay, so I'll just uh, I'll read some of the emails here. This is from Denine. Oh, that dumps. Chem dumps. <laughs> Otherwise known as chemical trails. Being dropped and sprayed throughout the United States. Thanks. That that tune gives me inspiration. <laughs> So this is from Deneen. <clears throat> so I think Darren will have to stop being skeptical about this now. Now, I also think everybody has a perception of you being skeptical. I mean, it's not the type of skeptical. Well, you are a little skeptical. You're more skeptical than me about really what's going on. But you do believe that weather modification is happening, right? Well, yes, I do believe that weather modification is happening. I just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of a lame attitude to and have. And I don't think that... Well, when, because we're, I don't, when we're being taxed, I'm paying... How much carbon tax are you paying now? 
This is, yeah, a, this that's, is a serious that's, issue, that's right? That's my problem, is the politicians that are making me pay the tax. So that's why you should care about weather modification, because well, they don't take that into account. I need new politicians. Hmm. I don't, I don't want to talk about that here. No, I, well, <laughs> no, we're talking about carbon tax that we pay because they're not taking all this other stuff into account. Yeah. Or maybe they're charging those people too. There's probably a tax to go spray shit. They're probably getting paid on both sides. I just don't fall into the, they're spraying aluminum into the air to reflect the sun or trying to kill us while the elite take their fucking medicine that doesn't kill us or killing no, our sperm count. You don't have to go to that extreme. That's fine. I just but think it's just a, a bunch of a, different agendas. There's not one Exactly, which makes it even more important that, that they recognize these agendas. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, here's... I feel like we're in a courtroom and you're just... <clears throat> So this is from Danane Harvard's new announcement. They will be spraying the skies within two weeks. They've been working on this behind the scenes, apparently, to try and mimic a volcanic event brought to you by Bill Gates. She links or he links to the Garden Guardian article. <clears throat> if you've been reading the data put out by people who have been paying attention, you know the climate is not warming, but is in fact cooling due to the sun going quiet and that we are headed towards a grand solar minimum which will definitely continue to cool us. These people are trying to take credit for the cooling by doing this. That's what, that's an interesting, that's, that's an interesting hypothesis there that the reason, so you know how there's all these different theories about why there would be spraying going on, mm-hmm. like solar radiation management, maybe to stop the thing. But this hypothesis, is like they're doing it to take credit for the cooling because they know the cooling's coming. No, like it's pretty deep, but it's interesting. But it's going to get pretty cold, I think. So then are they going to say we overdid it? (laughs) (laughs) Then they're going to have to, how are they going to warm it back up? That's a tough one. They'll be drilling deeper for oil. They're just going to have big old tire fires again. And even the IPCC, the purveyors of the warming propaganda, are warning that this is a very dangerous project. And we are being asked, and we aren't being asked if we want this to happen. It is happening. What in the hell will they do when we cool to the point of very short growing seasons and people die of starvation? Perhaps this is why Gil, Bill, Gil Bates. Gil Bates? <clears throat> I like that. This is why Gil Bates is funding it. He loves to depopulate. Not sure if you're familiar with suspicious observers, but here's a little clip of them discussing the article. Anyway, not a conspiracy any longer. Harvard is now admitting that they're doing it. You and I know they have been for a long time and are only now admitting it. Cheers from Portland. Portland, I have to, I have to apologize for my uh, voice. I've uh, choked on something. <clears throat> ice cube? Was it the ice cube? Pretty much. Nice. Ice so cube skill. I'm going to read the emails and then I'm going to go into the article if you don't mind. Sure. I kind of mind, but. You do? Why? I don't care. And then we're going to bring Ephraim on, I believe, for a little bit. He's got some stuff he wants to talk about. He's our first guest on the show. First ever. Always good to have him on for a quick chat. Okay, this is the next one from Deep Thought. He's a UK subscriber, so I would say the UK posse. And he, uh, he sends me the same thing. And he says, hi, Graham. Hope this email finds you and Darren well. You guys do a really great work. And I can't wait for your newsletter to tell me when something new is ready to listen to. 
keep the faith guys and carry on doing what you're doing. Somebody's got to keep it real. So, you don't have to wait till the newsletter. <clears throat> but I'll take another break and say, yeah, sign up for the newsletter and you can get you can the, go to the, free, website the free bonus up. episode that's from it. the cabin still, right? Yeah. But that's not the easiest way to find out in the new episode because you should be subscribed to the podcast or you can go to the website and subscribe to the website thing and you'll get an email as soon as it's posted. The newsletter comes out to, doesn't come out till Monday usually, and the episode actually comes out Friday. Or Saturday. Or Saturday but or Sunday. Could they also subscribe to the YouTube channel then? Yeah, YouTube seems to be even further delayed. Right. Not that Justin's delayed. That's just the day we choose to release the newsletter. So subscribing through iTunes or, or like the podcast feed, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, and you get, it to, you get it probably like within five minutes of the time I publish it. Okay. But still, sign people up for the newsletter, for sure. Yeah, sign up for the <clears throat> newsletter, for sure. So I listen and watch a fabulous YouTube channel. Oh, and he links to it as well, uh, the Subspicious Observer. Subspicious. Who does a great job doing serious research and observation of the sun, giving daily updates of its effect on the Earth in regard to predicting earthquakes and monitoring the magnetic field protecting our planet. The guy who runs the channel is pretty upstanding and a smart guy. I was gobsmacked yesterday to receive an alert from his channel, which covered the subject of chemtrails and their official sanctioned use beginning really soon. <clears throat> he quoted from an article from the Guardian newspaper. Um, the article, although easy to find. So he's saying the article from the Guardian website, although easy to find, just search, search for aerosol injection, the new official name for chemtrails, has problems trying to save the link without sharing so they can track who is interested, I presume. What I did manage to do is copy the article and save it to my Apple in a program called Notebook. I have taken out all the advertising so as to make it easier to read. I think personally that you will be shocked, angry, and incredulous. But you will also feel justified over keeping the chemtrail issue going the way you have, for which I, for one, am grateful for. The full article with no omissions or additions is below. Be strong, brother, and don't give up on the truth. The one thing they have done is make the subject a matter of open public debate, and people will want to listen very carefully when you expose the real dangers cutting off the heat from the sun and what that will do to all animal and plant life, as well as what it means when we run out of food, people will be shocked when they discover a real ice age will do to the planet. So we had... Uh, Ben Davidson from Suspicious Observers on quite a while ago. I think it was uh, back to, actually, you know what, Darren? It was before we started numbering the uh, episodes. Yeah, it was like 93 or something like that. He's not <laughs> long before we started numbering the episodes. Yeah. I think it's slash Davidson. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. So this is uh, from Eric. Eric the Shell? No. Hi, found your show one day when searching Google for Istring <laughs> for interesting articles or podcasts on Kundalini. I've oh, been really? An, That's a recent one, man. I've been it just found us. I've been an avid listener ever since. Was so impressed with your work that immediately I bought a t-shirt for myself and my girlfriend. Can't wait for the day when someone comments on them. <clears throat> my like, my life, like yourselves and most of your listeners, is a voyage filled with synchros and spiritual guidance, providing firm evidence that leads up to the path to enlightenment. As a property inspector in southeast Arizona, I drive and photo all day. I have the opportunity to observe the skies and always have my camera. 
attached are a few photos of some interesting trails in the skies. Keep up the great work. Namaste. Oh, you sound like you're dying over there. <clears throat> yeah, sorry. You just like ruined yourself. Your podcast career is now over. My, my voice is gone. So thanks, Eric. Yeah, those are interesting photos. He sent me a whack of uh, photos. Some of them are pretty just like the sky filled with ex- extended contrails. <laughs> is it? Persistent. Chemtrails. Persistent contrails. Persistent contrails. Chemtrail City? Oh, yeah, it's brutal. Like what was the one explanation grid. we were hearing that time about it, about the frequency of the atmosphere having changed? So that was causing things to stay static. Not the Schumann resonance, was it? Yeah, or something about, yeah, I can't remember shit. Someone remembers, email me. I think the main um, skeptical argument is that we've put so much greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that now the jet fuel creates persistent contrails, whereas 20, 25 yeah, years so ago, it was kind of like that, except the argument was more it was radio waves and shit mm. that bouncy around that have actually caused the fucking atmosphere to go whatever. I forget what the term for it was. It was like charged now or not charged or, you know, it was charged or. Huh. Yeah. So, That's interesting. I don't yeah, know. Who knows? I mean, then there's the theory that it's actually, there's chemicals in the gas itself and the jet fuel. Then there's the theory that it's James's mom. So do you want me, I'm going to read the article then a yeah, little bit and I'll link sure. to it in the show notes. <clears throat> U.S. scientists are set to send aerosol injections 20 clicks up into the Earth's atmosphere in the world's biggest solar geoengineering program to date to study the potential of a future tech, tech fix for global warming. So the 20 million Harvard University project will launch within a few weeks and it aims to establish whether the technology can safely simulate the atmospheric cooling effects of a volcano eruption if a last-ditch bid to halt climate change is one day needed. Oh, this is just making me angry already. Scientists hope to complete two small-scale dispersals of first water, then calcium carbonate particles by 2022. Future tests can involve seeding the sky with aluminum oxide or even diamonds. Diamonds? How could we collect these diamonds? They'll be nano-diamonds, I'm sure. Ooh, those aren't good to get in your lungs. No, exactly. Well, either is all this other shit, I'm sure. What, aluminum oxide is fine? Or calcium carbonate? Probably oh, okay. Isn't perfectly calcium perfectly healthy? What is calcium carbonate? Is that like baking soda? <laughs> 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 Actually, I think that's sodium bicarbonate. Yeah, I think you're right. So hey, this is Siri, what's calcium carbonate? I found something about calcium carbonate on Wikipedia. Do you want me to read that to you? Yes, of course I do. Calcium carbonate is a chemical compound with the formula CACO3. It is a common substance found in rocks as the minerals calcite and aragonite and is the main component of pearls in the shells of marine organisms, snails, and eggs. Calcium carbonate is the active ingredient in agricultural lime and is created when calcium okay, ions and hard water react with... So this guy is way better than the chick. <clears throat> is that sexist? No, you you just changed the voice. You didn't change the operating system. I don't know. Man. He seems better. He seems better. <laughs> he's more responsive. He seems he seems to he pick pays up. attention. Yeah, and he's like, "Shall I read it to you?" She never offered to read it to me. <laughs> okay, this is not the only first study of its kind, says Gernot Wagner, the project's co-founder. But oh, it is certainly the largest and most comprehensive. 
I don't know if I believe that, but after reading the 1978 Senate report on this, geoengineering advocates stress that any attempt at a solar fix, solar tech fix, is years away and should be viewed as a complement to, not a substitute for, aggressive emissions reduction actions. But the Harvard team in a promotional video for the project suggests a redirection of 1% of climate mitigation funds to geoengineering research and argue that the planet could be covered with a solar shield for as little as $10 billion a year. A solar shield. Thanks. We need to be in the solar shield building <clears throat> business. Try and say that 10 times fast. It's just, it, oh, okay, I'll keep going here. Some senior UN climate scientists view such developments with alarm, fearing a crash drained from proven mitigation technologies such as wind and solar energy to ones carrying the potential for unintended disasters. Kevin Trenberth, the lead author for the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, said that a despair at sluggish climate action and the rise of Trump were feeding the current tech trend. But solar engineering is not the answer, he said. Cutting incoming solar radiation affects the weather and the hydrological cycle. It promotes drought. It destabilizes things and could cause wars. The side effects are many and our models are just not good enough to predict the outcomes. Natural alterations to the Earth's radiation balance can be short-lasting but terrifying. A 1991 Mount Pinatubu eruption lowered global temperatures... I like that point by, of yours. You could be like a commercial. By 0.5 degrees Celsius. While Mount, Mount Tambora eruption in 1815 triggered Europe's year without a summer, bringing crop failure, famine, and disease. A Met Office study in 2013 said that dispersal of fine particles in the stratosphere could precipitate a calamitous drought across North Africa. Uh, let's see here. I'm going to keep going. Hmm. So Frank Kutz, Kush, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, the Harvard Atmospheric Sciences professor leading the experiment said that the deployment of solar geoengineering system was a terrifying prospect that he hoped would never have to be considered. At the same time, though, we should never choose ignorance over knowledge in a situation like this, he said. If you put heat into the stratosphere, it may change how much water gets transported from the troposphere to the stratosphere. And the question is, how much are you creating a domino effect with all kinds of consequences. What we can do to quantify this is to start with lab studies and try to understand the relevance properties of these aerosols. So then they're talking about doing studies and throwing like a one kilometer long and 100 meter wide icy plume up there to study it. <clears throat> they talk about Bill Gates and other foundations funding it. And the program's launch will follow a major conference involving 100 scientists, which begins in Washington, D.C. today. So they're just going to spray a bunch of water up there and let it freeze and see what happens? Hopefully it doesn't just block out too much sun and the plants stop growing? Well, it'll only be one, K, one kilometer long there. Are they going to do it over Bill Gates' house? Yeah, maybe. a Just big shadow over his house. <laughs> so solar, solar geoengineering's journey from the fringes of climate science to the mainstream will be sealed at a prestigious Gordon Research Conference in July, featuring senior f figures from the NOAA and Oxford. But critics of solar radiation management approach this as a call to redouble mitigation efforts and guard against the elevation of this questionable Plan B. So, I mean, the article's actually pretty good at... Um, you know, talking about some of the fears around it, but it's pretty amazing to me that they're just outwardly 
talking about this fix. And the video itself has a bunch of scientists on there, and they're talking like, hey, it's no problem. Just where the science is there, we can fix this for $10 billion a year. Pretty scary to me. Very okay. scary to me. Let's not do that. So I figured I'd just let them know that if they want some help with this, there's a bunch of patents they could look at. So I was just going to read some patents here. Okay. It's unbelievable. It so they can just go skip, skip all the fucking R and D and go to this patent list. And these are back from the eighties, right? Oh, atmosphere modification satellite patent for that. Laminar microjet atomizer and method of aerial spraying of liquids. Oh, there, you could probably utilize that. Method and apparatus for aerosol particle absorption spectroscopy. Who owns a patent? I don't know. This is from the mid-80s. Method and means for weather modification. Bipolar fog abatement system. Liquid propane generator for cloud seeding apparatus. Aerosol particle charge and size analyzer. Method and apparatus for modification of climate conditions. Method of producing clouds, particulates generation and removal, charged aerosol. I mean, this is still in the 80s, right? Method of dispersing particulate aerosol tracer, method of suppressing formation of contrails and solution, therefore. Uh, it, it, go, it goes on and on. I could keep going on and don't, on. I could, don't, I could don't, skip don't, to don't, the. Don't, don't, don't keep going. I can skip to the uh, the nineties. I guess kind of good in here. Show notes. The nineties is good here because it goes method of suppressing formation of contrails. Oh, I just read that. Is that a duplicate? Inspection of fuel particles with acoustics. Hey, eh? what's that one? What? Where are you reading this from? This is from my notes. Millimeter wave screening cloud and method. Cloud seeding. There's another new patent for cloud seeding in the 90s. 94, method of cloud seeding. Wrap it up, Dunlop. Wrap it up, Dunlop. Okay, give me a couple more here. A couple more. I'll pick out a couple good ones. Aha. Propellant-based aerosol generation devices and methods. So that's where they're, how they're doing it to the gas. Say that again. Propellant-based aerosol generation devices and method. Huh. Method of modifying weather. Again, method and apparatus for measuring particle size distribution. I mean, come on. It's all right here. You don't even have to do any R&D. We should get into it. <clears throat> I don't want to get into it. It's the worst. It's, it's a disgusting hypothesis don't play around with the weather like that i don't understand it just let it go let it be we need a pet peeve jingle it's definitely my my pet peeve it does I know. it's been going on for 40 episodes <laughs> <laughs> probably more than that all right buddy there you go the other thing i don't frame? understand here hang on one more thing oh. the other thing i don't understand is they're acting as if None of this weather modification has already been done. Like, forget about the chemtrail conspiracy for a sec and just think, are, don't they know? Aren't they involved? Are they just playing dumb that, that, that all this has been going on for decades? Weather modification, cloud seeding, that type of stuff? Like, Who's they? The, 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 all the scientists in this project. 
Oh, those guys. Yeah. Like why, you know, well, they're they, they act as if it's all brand new. Well, what, look at the list of patents I just read. It's hundreds of patents. Hundreds. You think they do that? You think they care? Shouldn't they? They're doing all this brand new research. That they think they're like, you know, the, the difference is I believe they're, they're up 20 kilometers, which is probably almost twice as high as the normal um, air traffic, right? None of that shit worked. What do you mean? How you do you know that? It's creating weather. It's creating rain, removing rain, creating clouds, removing clouds, if creating worked, snow. They wouldn't have to try this. Dispersing one. fog. What else are they doing up there with all that? Maybe I wonder if it, it, maybe it's like there's more to it than we think, and that's why. More to what? The warming. I don't understand what maybe you mean. The sun's about to go fucking buck wild. Like get hot? You mean? Yeah. So you just think it's all in above board. It's like, oh yeah, we're just going to prepare because we know the sun's going to get real hot. So we're going to prepare a nice solar shield for you. Yeah, like fucking Armageddon style. We're just trying to help you motherfuckers out. You know, we would be picking apart Bruce Willis and Armageddon. We'd be pissed about it. <clears throat> yeah, probably. What did Bruce Willis do? I don't know. Save the fucking world. Did he? And Armageddon? Let's <laughs> go going, Ephraim? Hey, hey, what's up, guys? Hey, it's good to have you here again, buddy. Yeah, I know. It's been a while. I was thinking about you when I was listening to this Joe Rogan episode there, and uh, actually it was the one with him and Alex Jones, and <laughs> I know. and they were talking about the, the the Phobos monolith, and I'm like, hey, never mind. I know. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's kind of weird. Not, uh, not granted, I'm not a fan of Alex Jones. I'm just saying, right? But, but he was talking about Buzz Aldrin and misquoted that. However... When people like double check what he's talking about and yeah. see the Boss Audrey clip and then see, then they'll come across my Phobos monolith discovery, then hey, I'll take it. I was thinking about like in 150 years, right? That we'll, we'll be on the monolith and we'll be thinking back and the, the Ephraim's name will be in history. Like, so the guy that <laughs> discovered the monolith was this like independent researcher. We'll be dead. Know, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that, actually, I think it might be. Uh, uh, might become like a face of Mars kind of thing. Now, uh, the only difference is that when they actually do get your image at close up, they're going to see for what it is, which is, you know, a rock that's just sticking up out of the ground, but that's pretty unusual. You know, so like the face on Mars, right, when they re-imaged it, it just turned out to be a pile of rocks. Uh, I thought this was a spaceship mooring. Yeah, yeah, that's... <laughs> with all the attachments to it. That's right. But, uh, yeah, but anyways, that's kind of interesting that uh, something that... You know, I discovered, you know, that I looked at and it's finally kind of in, in the background, like, you know, in this meme and people talking about it, you know, weird angles. And it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. Yeah. For people that don't know, Ephraim was the very first guest of the Grammarica show. Yeah, we yeah, talked about the monolith. I think we talked about the monolith. Yeah, we talked this about came the monolith. Up like four years ago. He was, yeah. this was probably like two years before he got proven right about his stains being water, <laughs> all that shit. Yeah, so check that out because we got a way more listeners now than we did for that episode. So everyone should go back and check out uh, number one with Ephraim. Yes, please do. All right, and you got a lot of new Americans out there. That's awesome, man. Yeah, yeah, there's a big podcast bump. Hey, also I want to uh, uh, to uh, let you guys know about my solar projector. And have you seen that video yet? I have on YouTube. I think I, I watched it quite a while ago. Probably it was a few months back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in uh, but what it is is a way to view the sun uh, 
uh, using binoculars and using construction materials. And it's something that anyone can build. Just go to Home Depot, you know, you get these parts together. And if you got a spare pair of binoculars, then you can see the sun disk about six inches, eight inches, and very visible. You can see very clearly, like solar spots, sunspots, and planetary transits like Venus and Mercury when they go in front. Uh, but also, more importantly, for the solar eclipse that's coming up later this year. I'm going down to southern Idaho for that. Oh, you are? Oh, yeah. cool, man. Well, can you, can you make these portable? No. <laughs> I mean, it's something you could build on the spot. I mean, because what it is, it uses, uh, in order to get the size and the distance for the binoculars to the screen, uh, it uses a gutter downspout. It's about 10 feet. So, I mean, it's lightweight. You can move it around, but, you know, you can take it on the plane with you. So, well, no, Darren's probably driving. Yeah, so. I'm driving, yeah. So, oh, could, yeah. so could he, like, so when they go through the board and they ask you what that big gutter is doing <laughs> in, in, your, in your car, you'll be like, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm using E-Frame's well, Palermo e solar projector. I'll buy it at the Home Depot in Idaho. Yeah, yeah, you could, you could just. Make I'm it sure down. you'll be meeting somebody down there. They can bring that. The, yeah, I'm the, doing the, a whole gear. tour. I'm going down down the down out i'll actually be out your way first before the eclipse oh really because oh, i'm going oh, down to, we're going to check out take the kids down to the coast and then we're going to cycle back into idaho for the eclipse just because it's they, almost like it's an extra 40 seconds of dark if you go inland oh and weigh the fuck less people yeah right <laughs> so Ephraim, can you uh can you see any ufos going across the sun at all no however what you can see is like the International Space Station. And I just found this out that you can actually you can you can actually get this table that shows the you know your location and you know and the angle from you to the sun, what time of day, whatever. But anyway, there's times when the ISS transits the sun in front of your location. And if you have uh, this solar projector, you'll be able to see it going across the disk to the sun. Ah. Nice. Oh, but but UFOs, unless they're as big as that and that close in orbit, you know, or or just um, way bigger and closer to the sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way we'll have biggest. to put that in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it's a uh, you know it's a YouTube video, it's something I did in my backyard, you know, but something anyone can build, you know, and and it works like a charm. That's uh, I think your mic is uh, mic is rubbing on something, you friend. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. maybe to hold it up. Yeah. So. I remember talking about this a while back too, and I was thinking we need to have, uh, or I think some people have developed like a solar refractor or reflector, so you can get real sunlight into your house through a reflection process. Oh, that would be interesting, actually, because I'd like to get some sunlight into some places in my house. Yeah. Well, they have what they call solar tubes that you could put in a house. You put it to your roof. It's got a big like a like a dome on top. And it's a luminized tunnel that goes into to your attic and into your wall and your ceiling. They do, they do have that. Can you send me a link for that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've installed a few of those. Yeah, after but I'm run, talking about one that doesn't go keep... all the way through the roof, but this, it just shines through the, from outside into your home. Oh, well, so what would that? So if I plug that into my roof and it, it would, I could, like, make a room in my basement, like, sunlit up, like a sunroom? Yeah, well, we have to. You have a tube that's going through the house, right? So aside yeah, yeah, yeah. from that, but that's not too bad but, though. I could deal with that. Yeah, yeah. A hole in your roof, and then having to seal it and all that. Well, well yeah, yeah. Comes with, it's, it's, it comes with flashing. It's a whole. It's a whole kit, you know. Oh, it's really? Kind of a, it's not yeah. that hard to do this, this kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. 
People do it every day. <laughs> yeah, so you're not, you're you're not a guy that does it every day. No, no. But uh, I've no, done no. roofs and yeah, all okay. that. All right, okay. I'm not going to do it anyway. I'm not allowed to do that. Well, <laughs> you might be able to do it if you increase the value. You have to hide a whole hide it though. You know what I mean? Because if I'm trying to get into my basement, then you need to fucking run it through a wall someplace. Yeah, but I'll build a box for it. Somehow. Oh, you're going to your basement with it? Oh, yeah. Well, my yeah, fucking yeah. Whole main floor is full of windows. Right. I don't need a sun refractor for my main floor. But my basement gets, like, no sunlight. You need it for your, your garden? And my garden gets plenty <laughs> of sun. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Solar projector for your garden. <laughs> so... So uh, what about your 3D paintings? What what else you got? You got always got something new going Ooh, those on. Those paintings are fucking wild looking. Can, are you going to send me one of those? <laughs> Man, those things are crazy. Well, what yeah, it is. fucking wild. Can you do a Moai? Oh, make yeah. us a Moai smoking a joint. <laughs> there we go. With some headphones and shit. Yeah. And I'll pick it up yeah. in August. All right. All right. We'll do that. That'd be awesome. But yeah, so what this is, this is kind of a, it's a different type of art form because uh, what I'm doing is I'm doing a sculpture, uh, you know, on a flat surface, and then I'm painting over it. But on top of that, what, what I'm working on that's new is the frame of the painting is curved uh, in, in whatever way. It's all kind of like a blob, it looks like a blob surface or kind of a curvy. But what that does, it translates to an outside in uh, yeah, I mean, you've seen the pictures of it, right? You can see like the waves and like a rhythm. It creates a certain rhythm of art to the whole process. So, but uh, but the, here's the thing, though, in the frame, the way I, I make this is I laminate thin strips of wood together and glue them together until they're about an inch thick, and then I finish it and stain it, and that's the frame. But that has like these little lines you can see, so it looks kind of like tree rings. Anyway, it's kind of a cool effect. People are really liking it. Cool. That's not a distraction from finishing off your books, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. But still, it's like easier for me to do painting and stuff like this than it is for me to edit. So um, but I'm actually doing both. How is your book coming along? It's going good. Actually, I'm, I'm back to uh, uh, Alien Cartel. I'm almost done. I'm just kind of going through it and adding a few things and kind of cleaning some things up. So it's kind of like a, a new edition of Alien Cartel that be coming out. And uh, you know, phobia and dreams might get a little bump, you know, with this uh, with this phobos monolith exposure. So, looking forward to that. Nice. And is there still a sequel in the works? Oh yeah, no, I got the uh, uh, Tides of Retribution, uh, the sequel to Alien Cartel. Uh, that's that's in there, ready to go. As soon as I finish up my my little edits, and uh, you know, actually, I have also uh, like six books lined up after these to write. Already oh, penciled. Busy guy. And also, you know, unfortunately, I'm not making money on any of it, right? So it's kind of like a... Uh, it's got to be a labor of love, and then the money will come, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's totally what it is, you know? And I think that with my art, uh, that I, I want to sell them to support my habit of writing and, and creating art, you know? Uh, so, so I'm going to have a little web page. So if you guys, you know, I'll send you a link. I'm going to have a little uh, website uh, for my art. Uh, so anyone's interested in looking at that, it's something kind of different to uh, to check out. Absolutely. Uh, but, yeah, but the thing, too, is also, it's kind of like what this is. Like, when you look at a painting, it's like your eyes look at it, right? But when you look at a sculpture, you kind of tend to want to feel it, right? It's more like a 3D. Uh, so what this is, it's a combination of the two, right? It's like a 3D painting. 
So it's kind of what happens. It's like your mind wants to touch it, you know, because you're seeing all these forms and textures and, and dimensions to it. And then, you know, the bright colors, you know, that I use, I think it creates a cool effect. Hmm. That's the, the art part there. Nice. Yeah, I like it. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, we definitely got to get that video up so that people can make their refractors in time for the eclipse. Yeah, Six yeah, months, yeah. five months. Yeah, yeah, it's coming up. So it, it, actually, it takes about a day, you know, to to build it. It's not a big process. Uh, but you know, aside from the eclipse and everything else, it's fun to look at sunspots. You know, every once in a while, you know, because you don't really ever look at the sun directly. You know what I'm saying it's like something in the sky, but it, it's kind of nice to see. When you see sunspots for the first time, it's kind of a weird, wow, there's something wrong with the sun, right? It's going to explode. But, you know, it's a blemish that the sun has. And it's kind of it's nice to see, uh, you know, signs in nature, you know, close like that. Yeah. Well, and I think we're going to find out how important the sun is pretty soon here. There's a bunch of research that I think will change the way we wear sunscreen and glasses. And, and we protect ourselves too much from the benefits of the sun you know we're indoors oh. all day long and artificial so i i don't know i think awareness hmm. about the sun is good fuck yeah throw it yeah your sunscreen. that's <laughs> you don't want to get that's, just that's... sunburned either no no but but there's uh i don't get sunburned but you white folk <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't either i, I got the caribbean skin <laughs> yeah right on yes hey also because uh, on one of the podcasts you mentioned this uh uh, America YouTube video guy was talking about the ice spikes. Uh, yeah. He had a question about how you can have a control to test out this theory, right? Because essentially what this is, uh, for listeners that don't know, I have this theory that I'm trying to prove that you can actually affect the formation of ice spikes in your freezer and how this relates to quantum mechanics. Uh, but what this is, is kind of almost like an ESP experiment. You know, it's like, how can you tell someone to do something without them thinking about it, right? Affecting the, the experiment. Uh, and so that's kind of difficult to do. So in answer to his question, uh, the way I'm approaching this is by uh, using the person themselves as the control. And the control you're using is your memory of the times that you used your freezer. So how perceptive you are in terms of like every time you open your freezer, you see you see an ice tray. And have you ever seen an ice spike? I mean, that's the criteria, right? And then if you put attention on it and you start seeing ice spikes, then there's a change there. But the, what that depends on is the person's memory and perception. However, uh, if you weed out the people that, you know, that fall outside the category, the people that actually are perceptive and do remember stuff like that, that out of that number, there have been a few that have reported to me that once they put attention on creating ice spikes, ice spikes formation increased. Wow. So there's really no way to, to test it outside of that. You know, I mean, I'm sure there is, but what I'm, what I'm trying to do is trying to get more people to, to experience this for themselves, right? And to, and to kind of build up a consensus because that's how science is, right? It's really like you get enough people, you know, enough things happening, and you get, oh, wait, there's something going on here that will warrant uh, further study. No, it'd be funner. Like the consensus on let's global warming? Let's everybody yeah. try and get more ice spikes all in the Graham's freezer. No, I can't, I can't do it. You know what? I have a theory that the Calgary hard water will not enable ice spike creation. Oh, really? Huh. 
So you use it's too hard. Water. So I have to, yeah, we have to use bottled water. Do that and see. And I have mini ice like cube trays. Forest ice and I think you need right. big trays. I have small trays. Right. Well, but here's the thing as far as experiment is that use the same type of water, whatever you're using in your freezer, right? Because if you add things to it, then you might be creating the conditions for ice spike formations. But it doesn't mean that you, you actually influenced it, right? If you get better water, you get bigger ice trays, right? All you're doing is making it more probable that you will get ice trays normally. But that's not what we're doing here, because what we're trying to do is to change the rate of ice spike formation from how it's been, right? And the only change you're doing is just you thinking about it. So you're not changing any physical characteristics. All you're changing is being aware of this phenomenon. I think you should be emotional when you're thinking about it as well. Because I've come across it a couple of times where the element of water is connected to our emotions. That's the, the connection there. Oh, you're right. Because there's, there's, there's a way, like when I create ice spikes, there's something that I do. I don't, can't quite put my finger on it. Because if I could, I could do it all the time, anytime, anywhere. But there is a certain feeling or something, like you're saying, some emotional thing or there's, there's a certain connection. And, uh, and basically what you're doing, you're becoming aware of something at, at the quantum level. And at that level, your awareness can actually affect change in matter, or submatter in this case. So uh, anyway, it's an interesting experiment, and it's, it's still going on. Right on. Right on. Well, I guess that's about it, eh? Yeah, we should go over. We're almost at yeah. an hour. Yeah, it's a long intro, long and rambly intro. But thanks for coming on, Ephraim. And uh, yeah, yeah, check yeah. out episode number one. You're welcome to again. Send us over the like the the DIY uh, solar tube and all that other stuff, and Darren can right. start practicing for his little okay. eclipse trip. <laughs> the links back then were pretty crazy, so I don't know. It might be like America.ca slash. America dash talks dash two dash Ephraim dash no. mm. But if you just go to the website and type in like Mars, it'll come up. Search Mars. Yeah, yeah. Or you go to my website or Grandma link to the show notes. Yeah, yeah, just link to it. And uh, if you go to YouTube and just uh, do a YouTube search for solar projector or uh, Ephraim Palermo, it pops right up too. Yeah, we'll post that in the show notes as well. All right, awesome, man. Hey, and nice I'll, talking like, to you I'll guys. Tweet it and all that shit too. Yeah, yeah. All Thanks right. for coming back on, Ephraim. I got yeah. it. I got it right here. It's uh, <laughs> actually it's grimerica.ca slash grimerica dash and dash Ephraim dash Palermo. <laughs> wow. Oh, I never wow. would have guessed that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Well, big thanks to Ephraim. Uh, big thanks to you. Oh, we didn't even say the support the show. So go to grimerica.ca slash support. And support the show because we need your support. Uh, big thanks to those of you who do support us. We don't have commercials. We don't have ads. You know, we're trying to keep no paywalls. Keep all that that shit and just keep it free and do everything on a uh, value for value, value basis. for value system. So uh, if you guys feel like you receive some value from the show here and there, then uh, go to grammarica.ca slash support and there's a bunch of different options there. You can sign up from a buck a month to. Um, to 30 bucks a month and we've got people at every level everywhere in between we've got people that are upgrading sometimes um so yeah you know if you, if you start out you can start out go right now start a buck a month that's like 25 cents an episode and you know what if you 
if you if you can uh, uh, down the road, you bump up to two bucks or three bucks or whatever you can afford. You know, if everyone gave us a buck a month, we'd be laughing, and and we'd we'd be able to cover everything, and we'd be able to you know maybe do some expanding and things like that. Just that if if all the listeners could could commit to a buck, but clearly that's not uh, not a reality. So we need the uh, one to two percent of you to pick up the the slack. And big thanks to those who do. So check it out. If you can't support monetarily, you can spam gram your stories, your synchros, trip reports, yeah. what else? All that shit. Yeah. All that fun stuff. Feedback and rate reviews. Synchros, reviews. Review the show. Oh, yeah, we haven't got a review in a long time. Yeah. So check out gramerica.ca slash iTunes and review the show wherever you can. And most important of all, share the show wherever you can because you guys are the, the marketing, marketing team. Lab. You guys are the marketing team, the production team. And you finance it. Yeah. So thanks, guys. <laughs> Enjoy the chat. So tonight we got Carl, Carl Joseph DeMarco here, and he's living in China. He's been there for quite a while and uh, checking into all this strangeness. And he's got a new book out, China Weird, 10,000 Years of Strangeness. And I, I read it uh, recently and I, I heard him on another podcast, uh, Ben All of America. It's really fascinating stuff. He gets into all the, you know, the strange creatures and even spiritual stuff and shamanism. So uh, really looking forward to getting into this, Carl. How's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. I got a good night's sleep. Uh, I'm feeling kind of sharp. Uh, <laughs> I'm working my third cup of coffee. Nice. So, yeah, it's morning here. Feels like spring. Right on. Well, it's it's really, I'm, I'm excited to have you on. It sounds like our connection is good, and uh, you're just across the way from Hong Kong, I guess. So hopefully we can keep a solid, solid Skype connection here. Um, how, how about, uh, I think we should probably just get into a little bit of the background. We don't always do that here, but, um, it's an interesting story about how you came sort of to writing this book and you've lived in China for a while and you've been interested in all this, you know, the strange stuff. Do you want to give us a little overview on that? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess my interest in strangeness or high strangeness was, uh, initiated, uh, originally, I guess, by, uh, this book I read when I was like, I don't know, 10 years old or so, and it was called Mysteries, Myths, and Monsters. It was based on this old TV show, mm-hmm. and I was sick in bed with a fever, and uh, somebody brought that book from for me from the drugstore or something, and I sat in bed and read it and developed a lifelong fascination. And uh, my Uncle Gene and Aunt Nancy 
uh, were into that stuff too. They had read Chariots of the Gods and seen the movie and would frequently talk about it. And in addition to that, you know, being raised in this Italian family that's had ghosts with it for forever, going back to the earliest family stories. Uh, they lived in haunted houses and had amazing tales to tell about when they owned a music shop and the instruments would play themselves at night and stuff like this up in New Jersey. Wow. So uh, the fascination has always been there for all of these reasons. And the, the family was never against investigating these things. It's not like uh, you were ever ridiculed for it or anything. Yeah, in fact, yeah. uh, you know, a good, solid intellectual debate around the dinner table was often encouraged about. Nice. So, yeah. It's, uh, so that's about how it started. Um, and I guess that led into like more serious pursuits into like alchemy and spirituality and things like this later in life. And I got into that. Um, so there's that. And eventually I came around to uh, Qigong, mm. which is like a Chinese internal martial art. And uh, there's a very deep internal practice associated with that called Neidan. Just kind of means internal development. Right. And you use a lot of en energy and stuff, you know. And my teacher ran this, uh, Michael Wynn, fantastic Qigong teacher, uh, if anybody's interested in getting into that. And uh, he ran a study trip, a study and practice trip to China in 2002. And I jumped on board of that. A friend of mine and my mom also came along and just had this marvelous adventure around China, lived up in caves on Huashan and stuff. It was pretty cool. And China turned out to be a very different place than I was expecting. Uh, you know, if you think of, say, the U.S. or Canada as being in the fullness of their autumn, China was in the midst of its spring, you know, culturally, politically, all of this, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and the energy was infectious. You know, and I was like, wow, this is uh, this place is incredible. And you'd walk down a street, a street in, in like any town, any city, and people would walk up to you and ask you, where are you from? And you'd say America or Canada. And they'd say, uh, do you want a job teaching English? It was that easy, right? So I, I thought, well, Jesus, maybe I can get a job teaching English and spend a year here working on my qigong and get paid at the same time to support the adventure. And uh, so when I got back to the States, I contacted this agency in Yangshuo, and they got me my first job teaching English over here. And I liked it so much that I, I just stayed. Wow, nice. Yeah. I had a buddy that was over there teaching English. In China or really? Japan? Was that China? No, Brody or Japan? was in Japan for a year. Or you might even have done two years yeah. in China and Japan, or no, China. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. Huh. Where at? I can't remember. I'd have to. I'd have to brush up. I know he really liked it. Yeah, he really enjoyed his time there. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, everybody's back in the West still has these Cold War images of China, and it's completely different. You know. <clears throat> Well, that, that was one of the main things I wanted to talk to you about right right off the bat was how different the culture is. Like, I remember reading this book in <clears throat> probably about uh, <clears throat> close to 10 years ago now, maybe eight years ago, and it was called The Man Who Loved China. 
written. I don't know if you ever heard of the book. It was by a author named uh, Simon Winchester. And he was talking about this scientist guy in the 19, early 1900s who basically brought China to the West, you know, and, and it was about uh, Joseph Needham who, who basically made China, China from forming the West understanding of it. Right. And, and it kind of always made me think of China in a different way. Like that is way more culture and really old, old culture still there. I've heard of Joseph Needham. Uh, I can't remember in what context, but another guy that was important also was uh, Joseph Rock, who was a botanist that lived out in southwest China and was kind of National Geographic's man. And uh, I always thought, though, that the person who really opened up Chinese culture, at least for... uh, uh, people in uh, U.S. and Canada was Bruce Lee. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Yeah, you know, because uh, before before him, it was really more of a, a a scholarly pursuit, or for people who just had cultural interests. But Bruce Lee really popularized the whole idea of things Chinese. You know. So uh, that's my thinking anyway, but your book sounds interesting. I should, you know, try to figure out where I know Joseph Needham from, because that, that is a big name. Yeah, well, you got me back in thinking about Qigong as well. I, I used to do classes in Qigong a little bit, um, and it was it was great. And was al- also the shamanism part of your, like, the book, just on how old, then I started thinking, China's got this old, like, they're it must be even older than all the shamanism in the, in the West and South America. Like it's that culture has been sort of intact in a way longer than most. Right. Yeah. Well, it is the oldest continuous culture in the world. It's not necessarily the oldest country. If you want to look at it that way. Yeah. Yeah. The modern nation's only been around since 1949, but the Han culture, which is the dominant culture in China has, been ongoing for about 5,000 years, but to make it even, uh, Jesus Christ, the cat almost jumped right on my computer. I terrified me. I thought <laughs> we were going to lose our connection. I had to catch him and spin him out of the way. Hey, you might have dinner uh, for later on. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, that's be. a bad joke. I'm a cat guy, so Are I, don't, I don't really agree with that, but we won't go there. Yeah, there's some things I won't eat here, but uh, and that, that, that's saying something <laughs> if you knew more about me, but <laughs> anyway, uh, there are actually some paleoanthropologists here who uh, aver that the uh, Chinese people actually descend from Beijing man, which is uh, Homo erectus, that it's a different branch of humanity than wow. the Homo sapiens that evolved in Africa and Europe. Um, I, I don't know how widespread that uh, the, the whole, the whole yeah. thing to that. Yeah, it's accepted now, but uh, certainly some of the old school guys who are still around still still hold to that. And so that would, you know, make uh, a culture that is, you know, hundreds of thousands of years old. That kind of makes more sense. Yeah, it makes more sense from what we, we've been talking about this evolution thing quite a bit and how the race has evolved. And it always seems to me that there's got to be more to the story than just like over the last, you know, 50 or 100,000 years, all of a sudden these races evolved. Like, I think there's got to be different roots. 
Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I, you know, I was a wildlife management major in school and I had to study a lot of evolutionary biology. And as you get into more recent times, the whole thing is very compressed. You know, you get these new forms, quote unquote, evolving too quickly. There's the, you can't get the genetic mutations going fast enough to do that. So there's something else going on to the story. I don't want to say that it's aliens, but uh, the, the Darwinian model is certainly wrong. It can't, it, natural selection cannot explain that kind of rapid change. And uh, there might be something in the physics or the biophysics that, that we're missing that, that enabled those changes to, to happen so quickly. Could it be something like, um, you know, maybe different than uh, the actual conditions of the space? Um, you know, as our, in our path around the center of the galaxy, we hit a little path that, that has more radiation. Maybe starts fucking weirding things I, out. Most of it dies, but some of it gets weird real fast. Well, there's different reasons why a lot of it dies. I suppose radiation could have something to do with it. I really don't know. Well, obviously, external catastrophes have played a large role, like meteor strikes and stuff like that. There have been sudden climate changes and so forth. But uh, I, I think to explain that, science would have to take some kind of a quantum leap, and they're really bogged down in their dogma right now. So I don't think it's going to happen unless there's some startling discovery that comes about you know yeah yeah something but, but, something that they can't sweep under the rug right well you, you guys know cliff high yeah we had him on it was a great show yeah oh my god how did i miss the grimerica cliff high show <laughs> well you can go back it's a free free episode in the back catalog really yeah it was it was oh. it was fantastic yeah when, when was that oh i gotta say it was coming up on i don't know seven or eight months maybe darren do you know uh, it feels like a time is I just. I think it was in the summer, right? It was like last summer. Yeah, probably last summer. It was episode one eighty one. Grammarica.ca slash f one eighty one. I'll go back and find it. But anyway, he's talking about a big discovery coming out of Antarctica that's going to cause the whole paradigm to collapse. And by you know paradigm, we mean social, scientific, political, all of that. Yeah. You know? well, so. That's supposed to happen this year. We'll see what happens with that. Yeah, that's very interesting, especially with all the conspiracies around Antarctica right now as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the Qigong, um, I was wondering, is do you think it's the same? Because I don't, I don't think I realized uh, Qigong was coming from China uh, when I was taking the classes and all that. Or, or is it, sorry, or is it even coming from China? Well, the way that I learned it is that in you know humanity's dim past the you had these animist religions that were pretty common everywhere in the world and were basically different forms of shamanism depending on locality and uh as you know shamans communicate with nature spirits yeah right and that's how they get their information or find out how to cure this or cure that or uh, when to plant and harvest and all of this, or where to go gather. And so uh, these early shamans in, in, in Asia, China didn't exist yet, but the area we now know today is China, uh, developed these animal forms of movement to facilitate that. <laughs> and 
those animal forms evolved into practices, which then uh, evolved into Taoism, and this is pre-religious uh, Taoism, okay? This is the Taoism you find in the Tao Te Ching, not in the temple. And uh, eventually uh, doing those animal forms and the exercises and conditions they uh, created in, in the body and in your energy and your, your spirit uh, became more profound. And it, later on, the animal forms weren't necessary. You just had to do the meditation that went along with them. And then that evolved into what we now know today as Taoist alchemy which is a water-based as opposed to fire-based alchemy. In the West, you basically have a fire-based alchemy. And in the East, you basically have a water-based alchemy. And to me, I think the water-based alchemy is better. It's much more balanced. It's less dangerous. You know, and I think, uh, well, I don't know if it produces quicker results, but it would be hard to say that because I came to it after doing the fire alchemy. Right. And that certainly would have had an effect so it's hardly a blind uh study but um I, I think it's superior for a lot of reasons so you're talking about the difference between the eastern sort of qigong as it is right now and the wet and like qigong that we would do here sort of uh well this is qigong is is the same but i'll i'll add this uh remark when Qigong was brought to the West, and as far as I know, Montauk Chia was the first guy doing it publicly. Uh, the native Qi of Westerners, meaning people of European descent, uh, is much more yang than Easterners. And so the Qigong had to be modified to work with the yang energy. Here in China and a lot of Asia, you find people are much more yin. They're more quiet. They're gentler. It's a, it's a different overall uh, uh, energy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Energy. Yeah. Let's go with that. Yeah. You know. So, uh, so I think you you, you probably learned a genuinely uh, lineaged Chinese qigong that was modified to uh, compensate for the extra yang in in westerners okay you know in fact i think you know they're, they're so tied to tradition here that now that it needs to be modified nobody wants to do it <laughs> yeah. you, you have to do it the same way that it's been done for five thousand years yeah you know so in fact I, I think even a lot of chinese medicine has gone further in the west than than here it's much easier to find a good acupuncturist in america than in china wow that's crazy isn't it they do have great acupuncturists here but uh they're they're hard to ferret out you know so dr Zhu at the guangzhou university hospital of chinese medicine in shenzhen he's a great acupuncturist so how so, why why is that then? Is it is it are they like like you said they're they're not adapting or they're or they're just the uh, more of Western style medicine is moving in or how how come it's you're losing that part of the tradition? One reason is because Western medicine has moved in, and uh, most young people today would prefer a Western pill? medicine. 
Uh, yeah, for any kind of serious condition. Well, for a cold, they'll go to Chinese medicine for that. You know, you go to a drugstore and find any manner of herbal remedies. And so for a cold, they'll take uh, Chinese medicine for that. But it's 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 prescribed. I don't mean you need a prescription to take it, but it's, it's use and application. It's kind of like Western medicine now where, you know, oh, I have a runny nose. I have to go to the drugstore and get some pseudoephedrine or something, right? Yeah. And here they say, well, I have a cold. I have to go to the drugstore and get some mahua. You know, so it's it's not like Chinese medicine should really work where a doctor looks at you, takes your pulses, and then gives you exactly what you need. They just kind of uh, broadcast these treatments, and uh, it, it's really not supposed to work that way. And the same with... Uh, acupuncture if you go in with a sore neck uh they're just going to go in and put needles in your neck whereas a really good acupuncturist will take your pulses and look at your tongue and your eyes and all of this and then maybe he'll put needles in your foot instead of your neck because that's where the problem really is yeah it's a holistic approach yeah Yeah. right and and this guy dr jew that i met here is that kind of old style a practitioner where you know he'll he'll give you the full treatment and diagnosis like the acupuncturists you find uh in in north america nowadays but uh it took me a long time to find that guy you know so so it, so and, and also most of the uh chinese medicine practitioners are tied to the uh traditions that go back thousands of years and it, it has to be done that way and it's the same thing with the martial arts and the qigong so there's very little innovation in terms of chinese medicine or martial arts coming out of china now all the innovation coming out of uh martial arts and uh, alternative healing really are coming out of the west and and chinese doctors people trained in chinese medicine not western medicine prefer to go to the West where they can innovate and develop new treatment methods. Wow. Yeah. I never thought about that. So it's kind of a brain drain. Like we're engineers and mathematicians are leaving Europe and America to come here to work. The alternative health people and martial artists are leaving here to go to America and Europe to work. Like like you give us yours and you know show me yours and I'll show you mine kind of thing you know yeah which is which is strange cuz we're really not that accepting here as well i mean it's it's kind of opening up a little bit like you know acupuncture and massage are now covered by our insurance here in alberta anyways or in in canada and i think uh natural naturopathy as well um which would include homeopathy. I think some 500 bucks a, a year is covered by most people here as well. But I mean, in general, in the States, especially I think in, in Canada, like this stuff is not accepted. Like all this, uh, you know, alternative medicine is still not really accepted. And it's funny how yet, yet there's still freedom for people to, to practice. That's weird. Yeah. Well, that, that should really be modified. I guess it's not accepted by the medical community, but the people, I think widely accepted. Yeah, yeah. That's the sort of the paradox I was trying to mention, yeah. Right, yeah. you know. 
So uh, that's, yeah, I find that to be pretty interesting. So when I travel home and go to my acupuncturist, I got to pay out of pocket for that, but it's worth it. Yeah. So what about more of your Qigong practice yourself? I mean, you went, you, you started out in 2002 doing that, and then you had some pretty crazy experiences throughout your, your energy work journey, right? Well, I think the uh, Qigong I started in uh, 2000, and I don't remember exactly how I came into it or what decided. Oh, I know now. Uh, my cousin, uh, who uh, was probably mentioned, I think, on the dedication page, uh, he and I both got into alchemy about the same time in life and would share our thoughts about it. We were living uh, in different parts of the country, so whenever we got together, we would communicate about it. And he had picked up this book on uh, Taoist alchemy. And I took a look at it, and it was really interesting. And at the time, I was living in Tennessee, and there was a guy in Asheville, North Carolina, not far from where I was at, that was teaching it. He's one of the best teachers in in the States, if not uh, the Western world. And right after the first class, I thought, man, this stuff works great. And I started studying with him more seriously and more deeply and did the practices every day and was really amazed with the results I was getting. And uh, I'll tell you what, when I was a distance runner, I got this stress fracture in my right shin that never went away. And I would take off for six, eight weeks. Everything would be fine. I would gradually, you know, start training under very uh, uh, careful regimens and it would always come back. I could not get rid of it. After uh, about four, three years of Qigong, especially the bone marrow Qigong, the thing was gone. And ever since I moved over here, I'm playing basketball, playing soccer, running again, uh, and all kinds of stuff. And I think it's the deep bone marrow Qigong and the eight extraordinary vessels Qigong that really healed that stress fracture once and for all it restored the bone in that leg so uh that, that's my personal testimony you know? i've never tried qigong no yeah it's well i got acupuncture when i broke my arm they gave me acupuncture yeah how'd that go how'd that work it was okay it was like my tendons were too tight they're using it to like try and loosen it up i think there's a lot of seemed okay. tendon stuff and yeah, there's a lot of tendon stuff in Chinese uh, exercise and, and medicine. I'll tell you about it. I, I broke my hand one time, and this is uh, back when I was first started using an acupuncturist. It's a really stupid a uh, accident. I was running along the road, and the sidewalk had sunk. So this fire hydrant was sticking way up in the air, then it further than it should have, and my hand hit it while I was running, and it broke one of the uh, carpals and so or metacarpals and I went to the hospital got the cast put on next day I went to the acupuncturist right and he's looking at it and he's you know see your tongue and all of this takes the pulses and then he says this is going to be great <laughs> and he uh, says brace for the, he says brace this is going to hurt a little bit and he puts this needle in the outside of my foot, right at the base of the pinky toe. And I literally screamed. It hurt so bad, right? And he said, okay, now just lay there for a while. 
So I laid there, and all of a sudden, uh, my feet start getting really hot, right? And it felt like they were swelling up, like someone was inflating a balloon full of hot air in my feet. And then this ball, like a, like a, like a hot bowling ball, started rolling up my legs into my abdomen, kept rolling up my body, and then it traveled down that arm, and right around the break is really where it stopped, and it felt like my hand was in an oven, and like sweat was coming out, you know? And uh, he came back like 20 minutes later and asked me, so what happened? And I explained all this to him. Mm -hmm. Went back to the, uh, to the hospital a week later for a follow-up, you know, x-ray. And the doctor's looking at the x-ray, and he's scratching his head, and he says, <laughs> well, Carl, I don't know how to tell you this, but it looks like that fracture's healed up. I said, it's only been like seven days. He says, I know, I can't explain it to you, but you are one fast healer. But uh, I'm going to keep you in a cast for another four weeks just, just to be on the safe side in case it's still delicate or something. But I've never seen a break heal this fast. Huh. Did you did you feel it hit like after that that ball had moved through your arm and down into you know and heated up and all? Did you feel it like that night? Can you tell it was it was healing or did it was it still sore? Uh, well, you know, by that time, I guess the next day I didn't have any pain there. Yeah, I, I didn't have to take any like ibuprofen or codeine three or anything, but uh, or Tylenol three with codeine, but. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't, I didn't know that it had, you know, completely sewn up or anything. So, and, so. Then, and then after that, you were in China, you did your Qigong there, and then you, you took, mm. you had some interesting experiences in groups of, uh, you know, people learning. I can't remember, was that Qigong or was there other, uh, there was some other sort of spiritual slash energy work you're doing, right? Uh, I'm not sure which one you're referring to. It could be the tour or it, uh, what was the other one? Uh, we, the, the, the tour was in 2002, and we did a lot of energy work during that. We went to Beijing University Hospital of Qigong Medicine, and we learned to do some uh, Bagua practices or Bagua John. And this is a kind of a circle walking where you keep your body in a certain posture and walk around a circle. Uh, Thousands and thousands of times, I guess, is the best way to describe it. That goes back to the early post-shamanic practices where Taoism was first starting to emerge and the shamans figured out uh, that the circle walking could build energy. And in fact, you can see that even today in uh, still primitive cultures, a lot of their rituals and a lot of their uh medicine man or shamanic practices are done in circles, mm -hmm. right? And these ancient Chinese just took it further and developed uh, the, the animal forms and the Bagua John practices. Bagua John uh, eventually evolved, evolved into a martial art as well. Uh, it's very, very powerful. So we spent uh, three or four days in Beijing uh, learning the circle walking with this guy who had amazing amounts of energy. And then we went into these hand-hewn caves uh, just carved out of the granite on Huashan, which is called Mount Hua or Hua Mountain. 
and we would go into these caves and meditate and we got a lot of very powerful energy work done up there also but the most interesting thing about that trip for me was not so much the energy work we were doing but uh we met this we met the chinese god of immortality like you know, uh, I mean, physically yeah. Oh, that story. Yeah, yeah, that's a great that's a great story. Yeah. yeah the guy I mean, in the restaurant talking the guy, about that. The guy in the restaurant or whatever? Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about that trip, we might as well bring that up. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, for sure cuz yeah, and and then there's lots more to talk about with that too. But yeah, start get into that for okay. sure. Well, let's get into that then. All right. Well, you know, these uh whenever you have a a study trip of any kind to China, whether it's for scholarship or factory tours or, or cheat going, you have to work in uh, a number of tourist destinations, right? Because it's the only chance you might have in your life to see it. So uh, we were going to Chengdu and Chengdu was a stop off basically for Qingchengshan, which is uh, Qingcheng Mountain. And we were going to do some more qi going up there. But on our arrival in Chengdu, we checked into this hotel. I think it was the Tibet Hotel. And then it was lunchtime. And they had arranged this vegetarian lunch at the vegetarian restaurant in Wandu Temple. And uh, Wandu or Wanju. Uh, after all this time, I still have trouble with Chinese because so many of the words <laughs> are the same. Uh, Anyway, I think it's Wandu Temple, and it's a Buddhist temple, which is unusual because uh, around Chengdu, most of the stuff is Taoist, right? But we went into this Wandu Temple, and I'm not really looking forward to a vegetarian meal, but, you know, it's a cultural experience and all of this, and you want to try new things. At least there's no cats and dogs in there, you know? <laughs> yeah, you can at least uh, count on that. Uh, so... We, we go into the place, and it's really quite beautiful. It's got gardens and everything, and um, with one of my best friends, Rob, and we had had many glorious adventures together, and this was just another one as far as we were concerned. So we go in there. We're looking around. You know, the, the rest of the tour rushes forward to get to the restaurant. Everybody's starving, but we just kind of – when we go into a new place, he and I, we always like to kind of just scope it out, you know? Uh, you want to have a sense of your surroundings wherever you are, you get a feel for the place. So we, we tarried outside a little bit. And then our, uh, our, our tour guide and translator, uh, very wonderful girl named Lee Xiao, just like just out of college. She had majored in tourism or something and got a lot of these gigs. And she was especially good on these, uh, uh, sort of spiritually oriented tours because she knew all the Taoist terminology and had worked with Taoist uh, monks and so forth on a lot of this stuff herself for, out of her own personal interest. So this kind of translation that people can't typically do, she was very good at, and she was also just, just a lot of fun, a very friendly person. So uh, an interesting side note, she actually ended up marrying one of the guys on the tour and uh, they eventually, uh, he, he eventually moved to 
Chung Du to be with her. They lived together for a few years, then moved to New Zealand and are now in Seattle uh, raising two kids. So uh, there was a lot of special things going on with this tour. I just want to add that as a note that this was not this didn't turn out just to be a regular group of tourists going to learn Qigong. There was a lot of interesting things that transpired uh, from that group. So she comes out. Hey, guys, come on. It's uh, they're, they're, they're getting ready to serve lunch. Get to your table. So we walked into the restaurant. Uh, we, we, you know, she over there, she says, we spot our table and uh, there are some other people sitting there. My mom's there waiting for us. And then all of a sudden, the energy of, I, mean, I don't know how to describe it, really. You know, we use this term energy as kind of a catch-all phrase. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, the, the energy of the place changed. And the way I would describe it is if you've ever had a very lucid dream, one of those dreams where you're not sure if you're awake or if you're sleeping, yeah, right? It, it just seems so real. And that's how it felt like you were in one of these, these lucid dreams or like you were astral projecting or something. And kind of stepping from out of nowhere comes this little old bald guy yeah. that would be familiar to anyone who's ever eaten in a Chinese restaurant or been to like a, a shop in Chinatown. It's this, this guy called Lao Shoxing or Nanji uh, uh, Lao Ren. Uh, Nanji Lao Ren means the old man of the, the South Pole star. And Lao Shoxing means the, the god of longevity. And uh, he's got this bulbous forehead, long white beard and, and, and locks. And he usually carries a staff and a peach. And if you, you've seen posters of him somewhere, or little statuettes. You yeah, know? everyone will probably recognize him. Yeah, yeah. right. And, and, and we see him. We, we don't know who he is. We just, like I described to you, we just knew his image from from Chinatown or Chinese restaurants, right? And, and when we see him it, like stepping into the restaurant from out of nowhere, and the whole place changes. Waitresses carrying trays of food stop and look at him and track him. The manager of the restaurant standing at the front desk there where you pay the tab. He, like, puts the phone down to look at this guy. Li Xiao is staring agape at this old man, right? And he walks right up to my friend Rob and I, <laughs> and we're like, who is this guy, right? And, and, and takes us over to the table and sits us down and insists on having his picture taken with us. Oh yeah, there's that picture in your book too. I was just looking for it. Yeah. Yeah. So so and you've got you've got all these pictures in uh, in your book. I just wanted to mention that before I forget as well of uh, okay. you know, your generic pictures of this Lao Shuxing or however you say it and then you've got some personal pictures in here as well. And yeah. uh, there it is of him. Uh, actually, wow, it really does look like the guy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, except he had a, a long, uh, old-style tobacco pipe instead of the staff and the peach, right? I, I, he didn't take any pus from it, but he carried it around with him all the time. So, he sits, so, so we sit down with him, 
And then he like reaches into that robe, you know, like when you watch old episodes of Kung Fu and the blind guy had one of these robes on, he like reaches in there and he pulls out these two big laminated photos of him with two groups of people. And he wants me to hold one while he holds the other while they take the picture. And he's laughing with this high pitched uh, mouse like laugh. Like this. And that's all he ever did the whole time. He never said a word in English or Chinese to anybody. He would just make these these squealing sounds, right? So uh, I don't remember who took that picture, uh, but it was neither Rob nor I. And it was somebody who obviously had a one-step camera. I think I cropped out the one-step frame uh, for the picture I used in the book. But when uh, I asked my mom to see if she could find that and scan it for me, she sent me a scan that clearly had the, the frame of the old one-step camera around it you know that white part where you could hold it while it was developing yeah yeah the pol- and, and, uh, polaroid, polaroid style yeah right so i, I know she didn't take it because she's in the photo but anyway that was it and uh rob and i went up to lee Shao and we said who, who, who is this guy she's like i i don't know i've i've, I've been here a hundred times i don't know who that guy is i've never seen him before and I said, well, does like the restaurant hire him to uh, take pictures with the tourists? She said, I don't think so. He didn't ask for any money. So she asked, she inquired at the restaurant, you know, asked the waitress, the manager, whatever. And they're like, well, we'd never seen him before. And then uh, he got up and some of our people went outside with him and uh you know, he joked around with them. He would make these jokes with the camera and he would hold it up and pretend to take pictures. And then somebody would go to take a picture of him and he would immediately hold up his camera or the camera he took from someone to block his face. And, and he, he kibitzed with everybody like this for a, a little bit. And uh, Rob and I were like inside there still uh, inquiring with Lee Shao. We wanted to get the scoop on what was going on because although we didn't know exactly what was happening we knew that it seemed very unusual it just felt different you know what i mean yeah and 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 from where we were talking alicia we could glance outside and see the guy out there playing with the other people from our group and finally we saw these these Old, uh, the, these older ladies come in from our group and we're like, uh, hey, where's that guy? And they're like, oh, we left him outside right there. And we looked outside and he was gone. And we stepped outside and went down the steps of the restaurant. We looked around and, and this guy couldn't be seen anywhere. And, and there was nowhere for him to go. There was nowhere for him to walk or even run to where he could disappear in a few seconds. You know, so I wonder what his the deal was with the hold, holding the pictures up and get it. Like, what's your sense on what he was doing, or does it not make any sense at all? I think he was. Uh, I mean, I thought about that over the years, and I've never come up with anything conclusively. But I think it was some kind of uh, uh, like existential or metaphysical message 
he was trying to give about merely sightseeing or only being interested in pictures when something else is going on. Ah, is this a message for you and Rob? Uh, it could be. I mean, he did uh, spend a little bit of time with the other people, but we seem to be his specific target when he walked out of the void, hmm. you know? And and Rob and I, you know, we noticed he was gone, and we just like, well, we know what happened because we had seen people disappear before. We even had disappeared ourselves, you know, when we learned how to do that, and we figured that he just... His work was done and he disappeared. Yeah, yeah. You know? How do you disappear? <laughs> well, uh, I can explain that practice to you if I want. I don't know if Darren will buy it. But, no, but uh, I, I was that's kind of where I wanted to go next because it, uh, it was really intriguing to me the way you did explain that, like the concentric rings and the oars and all that. That was really, oh, really okay. interesting, yeah. We'll see. All right, what, so we'll see what, well, I, don't, I don't really care what Darren thinks, but we'll see what he says. <laughs> No, I mean, because you think about that, you hear all these stories about monks biolocating and and all these ancient people that have really deep spiritual practices doing stuff like that, and and you hear people talking about shape shifting and shamanism and stuff like that. So maybe every every culture of shamanism has this ability, and they do it somewhat differently. I mean, we had this lady on before who was. Uh, do you remember that, Darren? The black jaguar shape shifting and the shamanism. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that's not the one that ended up marrying the shaman, is it? It might have been. Yeah. She started sleep with the shaman and then yeah. moved him up to the city and he like got in all kinds of trouble with money and women and <laughs> that one. <laughs> all right. Well let me uh give you my angle on it anyway. Yeah, for sure. Um, in the mid nineties, I guess, I was standing in this bookstore. Uh, going back and forth between like the spirituality section and the nature section because they were both interests of mine and I wanted to know what book to read next, you know, and uh, you know how you stand like, I don't know, four feet back from a bookshelf so you can scan the whole thing, right? Well, I was standing in the nature section and I'm standing back three or four feet from the bookshelf. I go, oh, should I read that one? That looks interesting. Well, what about that? And then literally this book flew off the shelf and landed at my feet. And there's nobody else around there. No fishing line or, you know, no secret ejector tab on the shelf. This this book flew off the shelf and landed at my feet. And it was the tracker by Tom Brown Jr. Right. And I thought, well, I guess that's the book. So I read the book and became fascinated with what he was doing and teaching and ended up going to tracker school in, in New Jersey and, you know, worked my way through several of the classes and finally got to this, this class called scout class. All right. And, uh, it's based on, and I don't want to say it reproduces, but it's based on what Tom learned from an Apache scout about the secret uh, Apache scout societies and how they operate. And it's really a, a really cool high adventure experience. Um, and so one of the things he wanted to teach was the invisibility method of the Apaches. And he had to put it into uh, terms that, that we would understand. And he said, it's uh, 
basically what you do is you uh, stand next to something and you focus on your aura and the aura of the thing you're standing next to and then you blend them together and you'll disappear, right? And I, I was struggling with this practice. I knew I was failing. I couldn't do anything. And I'm watching all these other people do it. And there was a guy on my scout team. And these are you know teams you form as part of the, the, the experience to work together and do stuff. And he was from Germany. I think his name was Jürgen. And I saw him leaning up against this pine tree. We're in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey. And he just looked very relaxed, and he looked like a guy, you know, standing at a bus stop waiting for a bus or something, you know. And then all of a sudden, I couldn't see him. And I was like, whoa, 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 what is that? And then he kind of faded back into view, you know. And I was like, whoa, Jurgen, you, you did it, man. And he's like, really? I was successful? Like, <laughs> Dude, I couldn't see it, you know? So So he couldn't even tell. He couldn't even really tell he was gone, but he could tell by your reaction that it worked. Right, right, exactly. And and uh I, I think even uh Tom said something when, when class restarted after the exercise. Uh he had seen it also, you know? Yeah. And, and so anyway, as far as I know, that was the only guy who was able to do it successfully on that that first practice. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I'm going through these tracker classes and, you know, uh, part of the tracking that you learn involves the use of concentric rings. And this is a really easy concept to grasp. And uh, people maybe even have experienced it themselves on a basic level. Uh, But it involves bird language. And when everything is... Uh, baseline in the forest. Everything is normal. There are no stalking predators, uh, no people disturbing the environment. The birds carry on what's called uh, baseline behavior. And when they're doing that, you know there's no danger and everything's fine. When a predator enters, the birds will change their behavior. They will fly up in a certain pattern or fly away in a certain pattern, or get suddenly silent, or give alarm calls, and so on, right? So this is even then, natural natural predators as well? like Yeah, natural yeah, predators yeah, as well. Yeah. And, and the reaction of the birds will tell you exactly what predator it is, or at least, you know, if you're not very good at it, it could tell you a predator or some class of predators, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, And because uh, the birds, actually, they... Uh, they know how these different predators hunt and will respond accordingly. All right. So, uh, that then carries out from there to birds and other animals in the vicinity. So if the birds respond a certain way and that predator is also a predator of, of mice or squirrels, then the mice and squirrels will respond, you know, uh, and, uh, as you get further and further out, the response is more and more diminished until there's an outer limit to that, right? And it's really funny the way that Tom introduces this lesson in his tracking classes, where he'll say something like, you ever see these movies where the cavalry is out looking for 
some some Indians or some bad guys, and they'll have an Indian scout who crouches down, looks at a track, looks up and says, four men on horseback, two days away. How does he know that, right? Well, he's reading concentric rings, and the people who are good at this have appear to have supernatural abilities, but it's not really supernatural. It is a highly developed skill in the science of concentric rings, which has been lost in modern society, all right? But they will appear to be supernatural to anybody who's untrained or ignorant of this. So is that like, a, is a concentric ring supposed to be like a, an aura then, like, or an energy field around living beings or... Well, that's going on. That's going on spiritually, but just at the basic physical level, it has to do with bird and prey species behavior. Right. And you, you can accomplish amazing things just with that, right? So uh, I went up to Tom after one of these lectures or after a tracking exercise, and uh, he said something to me about concentric rings and uh, uh, right now the, the exact context of the question was is, is escaping me but it was his answer that 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 really remained with me uh, that made the most powerful impression and he said uh, something like uh, you know a fox will give off the concentric rings of a fox. If you can alter your concentric rings, yeah. for example, if you could reproduce the concentric rings of a fox, wouldn't you therefore be perceived as a fox? Thus, you stand at the threshold of shape-shifting. Wow. So, it's uh, see, I keep, I keep thinking of it as like an energy field that that that, change, that, <clears throat> that creates the perception around you. Like, it's an energy signature, almost. It, well, it, it, but it, it doesn't even require the energy. If you could do it on a physical level, you know, uh, you would be able to do it. But as I thought about that, it's like, how do I reproduce the concentric rings of a fox? There has to be spiritual element that goes with it yeah you know I, I i think i don't i don't think it'd be done purely physically but if you're using concentric rings on a practical daily basis say you're a bird watcher or a hunter or a search and rescue person those concentric rings just on a physical level can give you all the information you need to say you know uh, find the animal you're hunting or find the birds that you're looking for or uh, rescue the person that you're that you're looking for. You know. Yeah, so I wonder the, if it even the, happens to to hunters or good good uh, scouts or track tracksmen uh, subconsciously. Like, <laughs> I think it, I, I think it does. I think a lot of it. Like, if you just if you just spend the time with it, it will happen subconsciously. But that's how it happened with the earliest people. And they were later able to develop into a science because yeah. they would talk to each other and say, hey, you know what? I noticed the same thing. Yeah. And so I, I've come to think that that tracking uh, was the first science that man discovered. Oh, that's interesting. Because, yeah, because that's how he that's how he was able to feed his tribe. It might have been, I don't know, it, argue it was 
geology because of stone tool making. But I, I don't know that that required the, the precise science that uh, tracking did. Maybe climatology. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, maybe, there's, I maybe, maybe that there's, a, there's an overlap. Or actually, you know? you know what? Another big one was for sure was astrology. Yeah, definitely. Or and I think all of it, all of these things were, well, that's actually discussed later at the, uh, almost the last chapter of the book, right? Where we talk about the Yadron and the Indians of North America. Everybody dismisses these Sasquatch tales as, uh, you know, superstition or you know, Indian myths and legends. But the Indians of North America, there's no way they could have survived living superstitious lives. They had to be supreme scientists and masters of their environment you know they, they had to know which plants contained the medicine to heal their ailments you know they had to know which rock formations were the best ones for finding uh stones for tools they had to know uh precisely what 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 animal tracks meant uh if they were gonna find food or avoid uh being killed themselves by predators you know the, the um so yeah, primitive people man they had to have highly developed sciences to thrive in the natural environments where they lived now, i don't think they were just a bunch of moronic half, half apes uh you know barely finding food no i think um i think that that some of that um that exposure to the elements uh, did something for uh, probably stimulated the brain and the body a little bit. I think that's probably something that's missing from from our routines today. Uh, that could very well be. You know, uh, before I took up the urban lifestyle again, uh, <laughs> uh, I was feeling all kinds of peace and uh, tranquility and 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 spiritual energy and health. You know. And I, I always knew exactly what phase the moon was in and all this stuff, because you know, that's that's what you had to look at, you know. And it, it doesn't take uh, much of a leap to then connect all that astronomy or astrology with uh, the change of seasons or uh, animal movements and migrations and uh uh, connections with human behavior and so forth. You know, it, it, it doesn't take a lot. It takes maybe one or two generations of careful observations to start making those, those connections. Yeah. So, so the, so the urine, so, the urine is, is pretty much like the China Sasquatch, right? And, and it's not, it's not right. quite the same in, as, as popular in pop culture, like as it is here, right? Although it's probably, it's probably somewhat more accepted in a way as well. Uh, or not. Everybody knows about everybody knows about it. Like if you make a joke about it or something, everyone will get it. But uh, it's not it's not at all in the popular culture. You know, you're not going to see a movie like Harry and the Hendersons uh, come out in China. There's just not the but in the villages in that area, the. Sanongja Forest Preserve is kind of like the Pacific Northwest in North America. It's like Yeh-Run Central, like the Pacific Northwest is Bigfoot Central. And the people around there, in the villages, the rural folk, they, they all believe in it and, and talk about it. 
But I talked to a woman here whose father was a forest ranger in Chonongjia for 30 or 40 years. I, I don't remember it was a, like his whole life. That was his work. Uh, he, he doesn't believe it. He comes from a scientific background and he never saw it and he doesn't believe in it. But the people who live there, I don't think hold that it is some, some form of a relic hominid walking around. I think it has more of a semi-physical, semi-ethereal quality to them. And that's kind of the way you see it in the ancient poems. But if you go back far enough, it does have a, a, a physical reality. There's even fairly recent stories from the 1940s of people shooting these creatures, you know, and, and killing them. Uh, in, China, in China, or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Even, uh, 48 or 49 during the uh, Chinese Civil War, some Red Army guards shot a couple of these Yeren in the Shenongjia area because the villagers were scared of them. And uh, I really couldn't find any details about what was done with the bodies, but they were brought to the village for examination. And then I, I guess they were disposed of because uh, they, they've been lost to posterity. But man, if they had kept one of those, that would have been some great DNA evidence. Yeah, maybe the Smithsonian made it all the way over there to confiscate the body. <laughs> Wonder, does China have its own Smithsonian? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's making these things disappear. They're they're a lot more open on UFOs, though. They'll be, you know, that'll be on the Daily News. Even military and commercial pilots talk about it openly. So uh, I, I don't think you have the kind of repression around those things that you do in the West. Uh, but the Yadron is kind of in the gray area between real relic species and superstitious spirit being. And the government not real keen on superstitious spiritual things. But, you know, it's officially atheist, right? Right. But a UFO, that's a good solid object, so it's okay to talk about those as much as you want. That's and, interesting. And, and, and promote the study. Yeah. Do they think it's so aliens the, the or do they run, think it's Americans? Uh, a little of both. You know, um, one of the biggest uh, uh, sightings in China was in uh, Xinjiang province in the Kanas Lake area. In fact, that area has that, that's the where the title of the book comes from, 10,000 Years of Strangeness. They arguably have a 10,000 year history of strange spacecraft or aerial phenomena in, in the Kanas Lake region. And that's way up in the northwest of China. Really, really remote. Uh, even today, it's not easy to get there. Like if I'm leaving from Shenzhen today on a flight to go out there, it'll still take me like three days to get up in there because the ground transportation is so poor in that area. Um, so, uh, but but they have cave paintings. You know, I love, you always see this on Ancient Aliens on the History Channel, where these ancient astronauts being predicted by, being, you know, depicted by ancient people in this rock art. <laughs> but, you know... There's uh, cave paintings of one. There's one that looks like a sailing ship, like uh, Europeans would have used to go to the New World. 
you know, or a clipper ship or something. And there's another one that looks like a rocket ship. And uh, archaeologists who uh, studied that cave, they've, they've validated that this stuff is 10,000 years old. You know, these aren't forgeries or later additions. So nobody really knows what's being shown in that rock art. And I put those pictures in the book also so people can see for themselves, you know. Uh, but there was a uh, 10,000 years later, there was another case where a Chinese commercial pilot saw this spiraling uh, UFO in the sky near Kanas Lake. And there were, there were photos and videos of it because at the same time at Kanas Lake, there was a trove of tourists looking to get footage of the Kanas Lake monster. So that's double weirdness in that area. And then they found, and, and those people thought, well, that must be a, a, a missile launch gone awry. Somebody present there said, you know, hey, I'm a UFO expert. I work for the military or something. And uh, every two years, uh, Kazakhstan does these test missile launches, and that's one of them. And uh, you'll see another one in two years, and there was one just like it two years ago. And lo and behold, there was another one uh, two years ago, but on approximately the same date, roughly the same time of year, right? And the Chinese are really good at these internet searches. You know, you'll hear CNN and Human Rights Watch and everybody else tell you, oh, the Chinese ain't got no internet. They, they, <laughs> they blocked the New York Times. No, no, these people get together by the thousands and do what's called a human uh, flesh search, a run soswo, which means uh, human, translates literally as a human flesh search. Uh, but it just means people banding together to, to search things, kind of like what 4chan does like an impromptu 4chan okay yeah and they they found out that that earlier sighting the one i'm telling you about i think was in 2007 so the 2005 thing uh turned out was not a missile launch and that led everybody to think maybe it was a secret american spacecraft because they seem to be the most advanced in aerospace technology yeah. And then, and then the the research uh, then focused on that, but uh, they couldn't really find any uh, at least public information about uh, U.S. military craft that would match the what what they saw in the in the sky there with the spiraling UFO and everything. So it kind of it kind of dead ended there people concluded well maybe it's alien but the odd thing is is that it almost exactly matched another ufo that was seen by hundreds of millions of people all over china uh in 1980 the same spiral shape and even a, a friend of mine here a woman i used to work with on my first job in shenzhen where we later became friends and so forth she was taking the Gao Cao, which is the uh, uh, post high school, pre college. It's like it's like the final exam for high school and the entrance exam for for college. Okay, and the the day they took that exam, and this is why she remembers it. 
at this uh, historic town called Pingwu in Sichuan province. Uh, the night after they finished the exam, they all went out to blow, blow off steam and unwind. And they're out on the playground at the school at night, and they see this spiraling UFO. This is July of 1980, I think. And it was seen across China, I think in 10 or 11 different provinces. And it was reported in the newspaper. And I think in the book, there's a clipping from a, one of the newspapers of the time with a description of it. And yeah, it gives yeah. And there's a there's a, high, there's a picture of a high school class in there with the, with the uh, picture of the spiral as well. Yes, that's her class. That she's. Uh, I didn't see who she was. I don't know if she wants the whole world, you know, as if they're going to buy my book. I didn't. She. I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know if she wanted people to know exactly who she was. But uh, she's. Uh, you know, I'll give you a hint. She's in the front row of of that photo. Ah. You know. Yeah. So, uh, and that was uh, right after, I guess they took that class photo, uh, well, probably before the exam because they're wearing jackets and it probably would have been a little bit warmer than that in July, but that was that graduating class. So is there a pretty big, I, I heard once that uh, there was an organization in China like MUFON, but much larger, I guess, like they had a, they had some UFO you know, research organizations, uh, pretty big. Do you, are, are you in contact with them at all? Or is there, is that something that you came across? Uh, no, I, I've heard about them and I can't remember the name. They even, uh, publish a magazine. Uh, it's, it's, it's really hard with the language barrier to make those kinds of contacts. Although nowadays, I guess most educated people would, would speak enough English to make that possible even if they couldn't speak about UFOs in, in much depth with English. But uh, my interest wasn't deep enough that I wanted to seek out those kinds of groups. Uh, if you read the early chapters there about my teaching job here in Shenzhen, you can see that I was, uh, let's say, distracted by other uh, uh forms of entertainment and phenomena but, yeah and, and, and phenomena but uh i'm kind of zen in the approach to that i'm not not deliberately it just kind of works out that way uh i i kind of like to leave these experiences to, to spontaneity yeah, I know what if you mean. You Plus, will. you have a lot of different topics to cover in this book as well. I mean, you, you know, yeah. if, you, if you go down too far down the UFO road, then, you know, you're going to leave something else out. I mean, there's all kinds of other stuff in your book. And I also wanted to mention before I forget that I liked how the pers you had a personal touch to the book as well. It wasn't just, you know, dry about all these cases. You talked about your own experiences in China and, and your own, you know, paranormal experiences as well and talking to people that you knew that had experiences and it's it's uh i appreciate that. that that's characteristic of the paranormal i think though i mean you know, people do often miss that but you know instead of trying to explain uh what this was or how this happened or why that is i kind of left it in, in the context of personal experience because so much paranormal uh, that supposedly gets quote unquote investigated is like that. You know, these things happen very often unexpectedly. They're very ephemeral. And then you can't reproduce it when you want to. 
and you're left wondering what the hell was that yeah, yeah. what the fuck just happened yeah you know and and that's kind of how i wanted to Yeah, come oh, across. Sorry about that. I, I I accidentally knocked the headphones out of my ears when I gestured, but I, I <laughs> wanted to leave it in that uh, personal context, you know, because that that's how people experience it. And then some investigator comes along and tries to make sense out of that. Yeah, yeah. you know. But I'm not going to let on to know like I have all the answers on that stuff. So yeah. let people come up with their own ideas. Yeah. So sticking with well, that lake. Uh, yeah, I wanted to get into the, this the lake. lake monster. Yeah, yeah, well, it's super. There's an interesting history to the name of the lake and the everything. Because the pictures really similar to the like Canadian Shield. Yeah, Darren, Darren will get into uh, this because he, yeah. he's, he's a, he's a uh, Genghis Khan. He's been into this uh, Genghis Khan story oh, lately. Oh, cool. So. Cool. Did, uh, you guys have that, uh, the one in BC. Yeah, Ogopogo. Ogo, Ogo. Yeah. Yeah, Ogo, yeah. So, um... Uh, it seems like every just about every country nowadays has a lake monster it can call its own. So this is the same lake you're talking about. The UFO sighting was at, right? I mean, so yeah, the, so I, it's it's one of these. It seems like a bit of a hotspot or or this, you know an area of high strangers. So you got this UFO sighting and then this lake monster. Uh, that's the, I guess probably the most popular lake monster in China. Then, yes, it is, and uh, it might be one of the best documented lake monsters in the world you know uh people would normally think that Loch Ness monster is but there have been scientific expeditions that have come up with squat in Loch Ness the National Geographic sponsored one and there were a couple of others and so forth and even the best photograph of the Loch Ness monster it turns out was hoax the the guy confessed on his deathbed so uh, the thing about Kanas Lake is because it's so remote and because China has opened up so recently, people outside China don't really know too much about it. But if you get on the Chinese version of uh, YouTube, which is called Yoku.com, uh, there's a lot of footage of, of this creature. And since the 1980s, scientific expeditions have been going out there. And unlike Loch Ness, these expeditions have mixed results. Huh. You know, and there's one in there, I think, from 1985, where one of the scientists snapped a, a picture of like this giant fish. Now, you know, we're not talking about like some uh, uh, leftover plesiosaur like they always say in Loch Ness. We're talking about a genuine giant fish in this lake uh and when you uh compare the fish to a tree in the same photograph on the shoreline the thing is like 16 feet long which for a freshwater fish is humongous and the local tuvin say this thing will sometimes come to the water's edge jump out and eat a, a horse or a cow and i don't know if a 16 foot fish is big enough to grab a horse or a cow but 16 feet's pretty big you know you see the crocodiles that big in africa right grabbing those wildebeest and pulling them under so maybe there's something to that uh they also went out there and put out these specially designed seine nets right super strong seine nets and whatnot not to 
uh, try to net one of these giant fish or monsters, whatever it is. Yeah, this is and, after this is after someone would, was said that this imposter because someone was trying to say this was a salmon or something, right? A landlocked salmon, and the scientist was like, "Well, right, you, you right, can't right. you can't get salmon that big, right?" Right. It was a local. It was a local uh, type of salmon called taimon. And it's in the salmon family, I guess, you know, the way zoolog uh, zoological taxonomy works. It's not exactly a salmon. You know, you have the family of salmon, salmonidae, and, and then you have uh, genera, a fish within that family, some of those being the true salmons and others being closely related. And the taimon is one of the closely related ones, I think. And the guy was saying, yeah, I mean, a fish can only grow so big. Uh, the guy who said that, I can't remember his name now, I'd have to uh, open up the book, but he was from like an aquaculture institute where, you know, they do serious scientific studies on raising fish and seaweed and other uh, aquacultural products for commercial use. So the guy is, you know, he's a, knows a lot about these things. He, uh, his expedition didn't catch any salmon, I think bigger than like, uh, two meters, which would, you know, be about six feet. So he, he doesn't think that the giant fish is there, but you have these other, uh, trained, uh, uh, scientists, biologists and, and whatnot who photograph these giant fish. There's another photograph of a giant fish under the water service approaching another net. And if you get on Yoku and look at the videos, uh, some of them uh, can't be like multiple fish in a school turning the surface. It's like a single organism that's moving through the water, though it's not clear. And then you have another one where you have a, uh, a forest patrol boat that's out on the lake one day, and they're cruising along, and a humongous giant thing like it was so big they couldn't even really they were so awed by it they didn't really notice what kind of a creature it was but the thing was bigger than their boat it jumps out of the water you know uh 12 15 feet over their head something like this and then falls back down they get terrified because this thing could eat their boat that's how big it was and they race back to shore and they find out exactly at that moment when this thing jumped out of the lake, there was an earthquake with the epicenter right there, or just a few miles away from Kanas Lake. And, and witnesses on the shore report having seen the creature, but they were also frightened by the earthquake occurring at that moment. Nobody thought to take a picture of it. So almost as if the earthquake happened fairly close and it was trying to get away or force it to the surface or something like that. Yeah, something like that. And you hear stories about animals predicting earthquakes, don't you? You know, uh, like when Banda Aceh uh, earthquake occurred in the tsunami, there were reports of animals leaving low-lying areas and running up into the hills and so forth. Uh, so uh, there's... Well, anecdotal evidence of this. Well, that's almost a concentric ring thing as well, right? I mean, if they can, if they can yes. sense, uh, you know, sense predators and all that. I mean, if there's, if the the earthquake might be giving off a a pre, uh, you know, like a pre quake. Uh, what was the word I'm thinking? A vibration or resonance or something like that that they can pick up on. 
Well, that's true. It's well established that elephants, at least, can hear ultrasonic waves. And if those precede an earthquake, uh, that elephants certainly would know where those ultrasonic waves are coming from and what they mean, you know. So uh, this, this, this is, that's exactly what I thought when I came across that account is that this creature somehow was responding to the earthquake that, that was going on. And the, the, the last video footage that I could find was from 2015 uh, that appears to have been taken by a foreign visitor. You know, could have been like one of these roaming English teachers in China, could have been a, a, a tourist or a, a businessman. I don't know, because there's no information on his Yoku channel about who he is. But the username uh, is not something you would expect from a, a Chinese person. And that's why I think it was a, a probably a English speaking Westerner who was traveling in the area and got the footage. And prior to that, there was no footage after 2012. So you had this three-year gap in Kanos Lake monster sightings. That's so interesting how they're all over the world. The the, the Bigfoot style, you know, the Sasquatch style, the Yaren and the Yeti and all this, and then the, the sea monsters are all over the place. Like, it's it just, uh, I don't know. Aliens. Aliens, Something's too. Yeah, going yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. Something's going on. I am not going to claim to know what it is, but something is certainly going on. Um, but it was, uh, to get, getting back to Darren's interest in Genghis Khan, he was actually the one who named the lake because he was uh, traveling through the area with his army and decided to camp there because he liked it so much. It was so beautiful and thought it had terrific feng shui. And so uh, he decided that he wanted to be buried there after he died. And <clears throat> the legend is, is that he's the one who summoned the dragon to protect the lake. So that that whole area would remain pristine uh, for his burial. Of course, nobody, I think, really knows where Genghis Khan is buried. But that certainly is one of the possible areas because it's right on the border of uh, Russia, China, and Mongolia. So, so, so the, so the rumor or the, the legend is that, that he actually, um, that the monster wasn't around before him, like that he actually summoned it to protect the, to protect it. That's interesting. That, that wasn't really, that wasn't really clear to me. The Tuvan, the local Tuvan people who descend from, members of Genghis Khan's army tell the story that he summoned the dragon. And I don't even really know what kind of a dragon it is because the normal word for dragon is long, but this is specified as a jiao long. <clears throat> um, and, and nobody I talked to could really translate that other than to say it was some kind of a dragon. And I've seen other people would say shiny dragon, scaly dragon, water dragon, and so on. So I don't, really know exactly what kind of a dragon that is well how do, how do dragons fit into this whole this whole thing i mean if you know it's such a popular it's hard to say popular because, archetype uh, and... it, it it is and in addition to that the word for dragon in chinese is used i don't want to say haphazardly but it's a common term for a lot of things that have nothing to do with 
mythology or or spirits or or gods. For example, the the word for dinosaur, kudlong, it describes these as a kind of dragon. So if you say uh, if, if if you say to somebody uh, you know kudlong, right? They'll say, oh yes, a kind of dragon, and and they don't mean a dragon like a the way we think of it in our minds, like uh, the knight goes out and slays the dragon. They're just thinking it of it as, you know, a huge reptile. When they say, oh, yeah, the Kunlong, it's a kind of dragon. I said, oh, the English word is dinosaur. Oh, okay, dinosaur. But to them, to describe it as a dragon is just a, it's just a, uh, a term of description. Huh. So... You have to be very careful with translations from Chinese because you see this word uh, dragon and maybe in their minds, they're not thinking of it in terms of the traditional uh, earth dragon that is the symbol of the spirit of the earth or, or the sky dragon. The spirit. They could just be trying to describe something, you know, that relates to this word. I'm trying to think of a word in English that's used the same way. And uh, I, I guess you could think of it as a kind of way. A lot of people misuse the word ape in English to refer to any kind of a primate, you know, even a little monkey or something. Uh, look at the little ape or something. Yeah. And it, it's not really an ape. It's a, it's a monkey or a lemur or something, you know, uh, that, that's what's jumping to mind. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, so it was so, was the dragon thing a topic that you had to decide whether you really got into it or not? Like, is are there are there contemporary dragon sightings, or is are dragons just a myth that really comes from you know bones, like dinosaur bones, or some sort of thing like that? I mean, if you, I mean, I'm talking about the traditional definition, not just the dragon being used for all different kinds of reptiles or whatever. I think the dragon might have uh, preceded the finding of dinosaur bones because it is um, it's so essential uh, so primal to the mythology and symbol symbols that are used to describe cosmic energies that I, I think it precedes uh, I think it precedes the finding of, of dinosaur bones mm -hmm. you know uh, I can't really be sure of that. I didn't do too much research into dragons or dragon symbology because I wanted to put new things in the book, things that people probably hadn't heard about or that hadn't been covered much. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of a lot of contemporary ghost stories, my personal experiences, and then uh, the Yay Run I decided to cover because. I found so much ancient history that can describe that. And it, it touched me as a, as a, as a zoologist that it, and, and, and someone who's involved in uh, spiritual studies, shamanic studies and things like that, that it, it was interesting enough that I thought I could maybe bring a new perspective to that. But otherwise I tried to restrict the book to things that hadn't been covered yet. Well, <laughs> So uh, I didn't get into the dragon thing too much. 
Well, ghost is another one that when you mentioned at the beginning, I was thinking of that, how pervasive that is in our, in our culture now, because of, you know, there's all these shows and stuff, but I was thinking that it really is one of those phenomena that's experienced probably more than creatures or UFOs that, that you could say I have family members or friends or whatever that have like legit, uh, ghost you know, experiences, ghostly experiences or whatever. I mean, it seems to be just the most common. Yeah. And I found out that they were a lot more common than I thought here because people usually loathe to talk about those things. And even though they tell you they don't believe in ghosts, they will get horrified, genuinely terrified. If you tell a ghost story, uh, I tell ghost stories every Halloween in my English classes and in the next class, somebody, two, three people will tell me that they couldn't sleep that night <laughs> because of it. You know, some of them will leave before I begin telling it. Oh, if you're going to tell a ghost story, I have to leave and they'll leave. <laughs> and when I was asking people for real life ghost stories, even, you know, close friends of mine, they would say, oh, no, 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 never ask me about that. Don't ever talk about that again with me. It was really, really weird. What was, what was the know? story you talked about where it was a Halloween story where you guys were dressing up and scaring people on the street or something like that? Like, it really feels like people were getting le legitimately, like, <laughs> frightened, frightened over these okay, things. That, was, <coughs> that wasn't me. That was another group of expats up in uh, Shanghai who... Uh, have a YouTube channel. I think I put the link to that specific video in the book. I had, I had no idea how Kindle worked before writing this book. And I thought, well, maybe if there's a version of Kindle, they can tap that link and watch the video. Right. But, uh, in any case, uh, that refers to a kind of Chinese vampire zombie, uh, combination called a Jiangshir, which means stiff corpse. And when we watch these horror movies out of Hong Kong that contain those, uh, those zombies, the Jiangshir, and we see how they work and, you know, we laugh at it. We think, oh, <laughs> oh, that looks so stupid. How can that scare anybody? But the locals here, man, they're terrified of these things, I guess, because when they're children, they hear these horror stories about them. And that image stays with you the same way, you know, uh, the images of our monsters stay with us. Maybe they don't seem so scary to people here, you know. So uh, this this group of expats decided to test this juncture imagery one day by having a uh, by dressing up as these juncture on Halloween and having another guy dressed like a Taoist monk. And it was a group of friends. I don't want to say expats because it's, uh, you know, I was, uh, I, I think I uh, misspoke there. It's a, it's a group of expat and, and, and locals together. You know, they're, they're friends with each other and they make these prank videos. Yeah, it's not and, just some Americans scaring at people on purpose. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, so this is like uh, young Chinese people, I guess, kind of the Chinese version of uh, jackass, right? And they like to go out and play pranks and, and, and film the videos. And so a lot of them dressed up as Jiangshir one day 
and stalk the streets of Shanghai and they would hide like around a corner or behind a bush. And then the guy dressed as a Taoist priest would walk ahead of them and hand out these flyers to people and say, Zhuantuan, which means, you know, uh, be aware or be wary. You know, the literal translation is pay attention to safety, but that doesn't sound scary. So you can't really, you know, Say that in Chinese, so you might say in English, so you might say, be wary or beware, right? So the person would come walking, would, would take this pamphlet and be looking at it, and then the Jiangsha would jump out and start hopping towards them. <laughs> and some of these people were really horrified by these things. Some people, normally the younger ones, you know, the uh, the the Baling Ho, Zhou Ling Ho generation, people born in the 80s and 90s, <clears throat> would kind of laugh along with them. But older people, like born in the 70s or the 60s, oh, there was this one woman who got so scared she ran across the street to get away from them. You know? So they, they occupy a very powerful place in the psyche of, of the locals here, at least among the older generations. Is Halloween Halloween big there? Getting bigger like it is here now? Yeah, it gets bigger and bigger every year. I think uh, my friends and I might have had the <clears throat> first uh, Halloween party in Shenzhen, and there's pictures of it in the in the book there. Uh, but by, that was 2004, I guess. But by 2007, 2008, you could see kids dressed up. Uh, going to trick trick or treat like in an apartment complex. They they you know when we live in the city, we're not in a suburban neighborhoods here. So you you could actually see that where they were on their way to a party or maybe to trick or treat in their complex. And the way it usually works here, I found out is you'll sign up for trick or treating. You know, uh, so if maybe Chinese who have lived overseas or foreigners who live here and they want to keep the holiday, they might go to the management office of an apartment complex and make an announcement and sign where their apartment is. If kids want to go trick-or-treating, they can go to that house and get candy. And I actually saw the kids at this one place, Lan Gu, a apartment complex where a lot of Chinese who have lived overseas and foreigners both live. Uh, most of them are like involved in the oil or energy industry. And I saw the kids with the list. You know, and they're speaking in English and Chinese to each other. You know, oh, let's go to this house next, or have, have you been here yet? And, and so on and so forth. And all the bars, almost all the bars in Shenzhen will have some kind of Halloween festivities. We'll have Halloween parties in the English classes and stuff like that. So it's catching on more and more. Uh, there's a, uh, several of our holidays that they really like, and Halloween and Christmas are two of them. Uh, those are the best Halloween. We used to have some great Halloween parties back in the early to mid nineties. <laughs> I bet you did. Yeah, I, I think it's really, I think it's really important to them too because normally it's a more reserved. I don't want to say repressed, but it's a more reserved culture than ours is. People are shyer about showing who they are in public, and Halloween is a time where they can do that. You know. So uh, it's an important time of self-expression for them. 
So we're almost running out of time here. Is there stuff that we you, you think we should talk about before we before we wrap it up? I got to vouch for the book is is awesome. It's a really good story. And and we're, before I forget to mention as well, we're gonna put uh, a di- or you're gonna you're gonna put a discount on the book on Amazon in a couple of weeks when this will be released. So when people when people hear this, they can hopefully go to Amazon and it'll be uh, discounted as well. And, and it just came out like recently, right? Like very recently. Yeah, March first. Yeah. The- the book was originally, uh, I was challenged to write this book by Tim over at BOA, and uh, I kind of took up the challenge uh, to do it. That was, it was, you know, it was really a project that was done for fun, and I guess that's another reason why it has some personal stories in it, is because it kept me motivated to, to keep going with it and see how I could make this a uh, a personal journey and, and want to write about it. Yeah. You know? And so it's got some, some pretty, some pretty good personal anecdotes and family stories in there. Uh, in addition, uh, there's another layer to it where we talk about the differences of between Chinese and Western culture or little insights to how things work in China. Um, it's got some plugs for, uh, Chinese, uh, places and products that, I think are good that I think it's important for Westerns Westerners to know about. So they don't go along with this monolithic view of China presented in the mainstream media. Um, it's uh, for, for, you know, guys who want to read the book, there literally are hot Asian chicks in it. So, you you know, you might dig that if you're into that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I think just overall it's a, it's an enjoyable read, which is really all I wanted it to be. But it's also got new and interesting uh, paranormal and parapsychology tales from China in it, things you never heard about before. You know, uh, and what I'm hoping is that people with a more serious and deeper interest than I have in these things will will look at that book and say, "Let's run with that. Let's let's have an expedition to Kanas Lake, or let's have an expedition to Shenongjia." And, and see if we can spot these things, you know. Let's find a good local translator and really dig into the local ghost stories and, and, and tales and see what we can come up with, you know, because China's really neglected by Western researchers. So, you know, maybe this, this book can be a launch point for some of them to, to come over here and, and then uh, write their own book about what they find. Yeah, it's a good it's a good starting point for sure. There's lots of good stuff in it, and and any of these chapters could go you know into a book on their own, really. Yeah, uh, well, probably yeah. If you want to do the research, you could easily do that. Yeah. Uh, so you know. Yeah. Right uh, on. But yeah. As as the bad William Shatner impersonation <laughs> in the old cartoon said, "Buy my book." <laughs> well, yeah. What but- was that? The critic? Have that in Canada, the critic. I don't know. Did we do? Was that so. that little like an, annoying little cartoon dude? Yeah, it was uh, the guy from Saturday Night Live. Uh, I can't remember his name now, but yeah, he would go to these celebrity parties and people would be walking around. But uh, the book has. Hey, here's another thing. The book has 100 percent five star reviews on Amazon so far. Oh, I saw that today. Yeah. So. You know, uh, it's uh, it, it's good. People will like it. And um, uh, I'm working on a second book now. So 
uh, when uh, that comes out, I'll, I'll let you guys know. Um, What's going to be a little bit of a. It's going to it's going to be about uh, alternative research, not necessarily the paranormal, but uh, maybe more like alternative history. Okay. And uh, when it, I don't want to say too much about it because I think it's the first one. I'll be doing the first one of these projects. It's, I think, a brilliant idea that has to be done. Not that my execution will be brilliant, but uh, I, I think it's a project that, that needs to be done to uh, recognize some work that's out there uh, that needs to be recognized. Yeah, it's so, kind of like uh, what we were talking about at the beginning, you know, that, that, that uh, sort of maybe partly evolution and part, uh, you know, ancient history and mystery that... Uh, because it goes back so far, just in China, right? I mean, there's, it's, right. Uh, it's, yeah, that would, that's a good, that's a good way to go. I want to write something that's going to maybe like link up some of these topics and stuff like, like that, and uh, again, it's inspire people to to do more research. So right on. Well, that was a good, that was a good chat with you and Tim on Banal of America as well, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes, and uh, so people can go there if they want to hear more. Well, Tim and I will both appreciate it, and uh, I guess since I'm here on his behalf, I will thank you for both of us. Right on. Well, thanks for coming on, Carl. It's been a great chat, and it's a like your work so far, and good luck on the second book, and keep in touch, and uh, maybe we'll have you back yeah, on. Yeah, let us know when that book comes out. Well, Absolutely. Yeah. Enjoy. Well, thanks it's for, pretty early. What is it, like 8 in the morning there? No, it's uh, 12. Uh, well, it's uh, going on 10.30 now. Oh, yeah. I have a 12 o'clock... Uh, <laughs> class I got to get to, but uh, I'll just finish by saying thank you to you guys for having me on. I really appreciate it. And, you know, when I first listened to your show, I, I really dug the format and it was really unique. And, uh, I like listening to it. And when I finished this project, I thought, you know, this is a, this would be like a great thing for Grimeric. Right on. I'd love to, to talk to those guys about this, you know, so keep doing what you're doing, man. I, I think it's interesting. It opens up these alternative uh, subjects to a group of people who uh, may not listen to them otherwise. Yeah, yeah exactly. Know? Yeah. Well, thanks. For, uh, thanks a lot uh, for that, and thanks for thanks for coming on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, you guys take care and uh, enjoy the spring, and uh, <laughs> maybe we'll talk again in the future. Okay, buddy. We will. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Take care, man. Bye bye. Bye bye. And that was our chat with Carl, Joseph, DeMarco. That was a fun one. Yeah, that was good. Like storytelling ones and finding out about new lake monsters. Yeah, new lake monsters. Yeah, you were browsing some pictures there. It looked like there's some pretty cool pics on there. What'd you think? I didn't want to interrupt him Seems by talking about that, but... Better than Loch Ness. Oh, yeah. yeah. Who knows? I wanted to sort of get a little deeper into the shamanism thing as well, and, and the, the disappearances and the Qigong. Like the, he seemed to... You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff connecting that, but I wanted to keep it uh, on all these different topics that he that he has. Word up! And yeah, China's kind of undiscovered. I think there's a it lot of history there. Like that right? Yeah, China for sure, and it's fucking huge. Yeah, who knows what's in there? Who knows what's in Antarctica? Yeah, that's interesting. They have like a, over a hundred cities of a million people too, or something like that. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And that's like, that's like a hundred cities like Calgary size. 
That's crazy. Plus all the bigger ones. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Crazy shit. Crazy yeah. shit. Well, big thanks to Carl for coming on the show. Um, bridging that fucking giant time zone problem, which yeah. is usually a problem with people on that side of the world. But Carl was great. Yeah. Big thanks to him for that. Big thanks to you guys for uh, for supporting the show and helping keeping the show going. Honestly, if it wasn't for our monthly subscribers, the show would not be here anymore. That's right. Um, so check out America.ca slash support, guys, for all the different ways you can help keep us. Uh, sponsor, ad, affiliate, all that shit free. No paywalls, no back catalog fees, nothing. We'll keep it all free, and you guys uh, support the show uh, when you can. Spread the word where you can. Spam grab all yeah. the time. Yeah, you can connect with us on Instagram and, and uh, Twitter. And uh, we got a couple of postcards recently, so you can send shit to the P.O. Box, too. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. all that. The P.O. Box info is at, on grabamerica.ca slash contact, which is also in the show notes. It's all in there, guys. So, uh, yeah, go to the show notes right now. Do all the shit on the list, and then you're uh, you're... You're good to go. You're supporting the show. You're good yeah. to go for another month. Yeah. Sign up for the five buck a month plan. Why not? Everyone should sign up for the five buck a month plan. And then, uh, you know, you're paying about a buck an episode. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody wins. Yeah, that's right. Less than a, the price of a cup of coffee a month. We can buy some more What's cords, What's a Starbucks worth? Cords are always the one, the first thing to go. What's a Starbucks? Two bucks? Two twenty? Five? In the States? It's the same in the States. It's just for the, for the price of four coffees a month. Three, two coffees a month. You can sign up for the show. Yeah. All right, guys. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.
energy condensed to a slow vibration. We are all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. There is no such thing as death. Life is only a dream. And we are the imagination of ourselves. Spam, Graham, Graham.